I just had to pull away. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Inglorious Bastards podcast, where we talk about spirituality, news, and the return of Dank Brad. <laughs> My name is Michael Basinger. With me are Brad Polly, Howdy. Matt Polly. Hey, hey we're, not we the bright, the, we're not the bright side yet. <laughs> together we are the Inglorious Bastards. Announcements, our Distractathon is in two weeks. Um, uh, what is that, November 3rd? Yeah, yes. November 3rd. Day of the uh, election. 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Facebook Live. Just, it just cannot be over quickly enough. My God. We're going to have uh, Branson Andreas show up. And literally, my autocorrect corrected to that. Branson Andreas. <laughs> like multiple. Uh, well, I need Andrea. to change him in my phone now. Andreas. <laughs> Branson Andreas. Probably because I was talking about Branson so much last week. Uh, and then, uh, so so Facebook Live, Branson Andreas, we're going to take your questions. Um, the prizes and surprises. We're going to have prizes and surprises. Are we? Uh, well, I mean, we have surprises. Are you going like, to talk to us about this at all? Like, you're no. going to let us know what Who ideas cares? you have? Do, do prizes. It, Who cares? It's fine. Well, no, I just I, like I don't to know have the sort of what's going if on. If you want to be I don't care. I'll the show czar up. of the prizes, you can. I'll just show up and I'll be What here. are we giving prizes for? I don't know. <laughs> It's a distractathon. Think of something distracting for people showing up. <laughs> We're just going to give away a bunch of fidget spinners. I, I have. <laughs> we need to get Pastor's fidget spinners made. Yeah. Uh, I have. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, I've, that's so three years ago, but I, <laughs> yeah, I'm totally here for it. Yeah. Uh, I've got games planned. I've got or one several of those distraction cubes that has like all that different shit you can yeah. do. Like, several clickers and uh-huh. stuff. <laughs> Calling guests that we've got lined nice. up. So several, he says. Oh. I don't want to know anything. Okay, well, I want I'm to come in. I want to come in. Let, have, can we have a Lint Biscuit contest? Um, I mean. And then make Josh come up and eat it no matter who <laughs> No matter wins. what. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Josh. Um, yeah. So, we, so yeah. Go, go to Facebook.com slash Pastors Podcast. We're doing it so that you don't sit and watch the election. Yeah, there's just no, don't drive yourself fucking crazy There's nothing you it. can do election night. The You're reality not is know who we're not going to know who the winner is probably on the third. Unless so. Biden wins Florida. But even but like, even then, it's going to be drawn yeah, out. It's going to it's it's be too close a, to call. It's going to be a fucking shit show. You don't need to have the anxiety of it. Just get on the Facebook Live or whatever and just... Yep. Check out. Yeah, like, I, I'm conspiring with some turds about different projects we're working on. If you've got weed, smoke some weed. Like, just relax. Matt really wants to know what's going on. It's nothing that's going to hurt you. I, I don't. I'm not asking if it's going to hurt me. I have no <laughs> fucking idea what we're doing. We're gonna. Uh, we're answering questions. Gonna a, yeah. Just so be if a people want to ask questions in advance, well, you're talking about prizes. You're talking about getting hammered. You're talking about getting high. I, I didn't, no, say, I didn't say we were getting high. I said if there if if you got weed, get high. We should watch do a drinking us. game. Pastor drinking game. Oh, that's that would like, be fun. No. No, I didn't say we had to be no, the ones we, drinking. We I'm pretty sure I have to work the next day. I can't go to work and start vomiting again. I've done that too many times. Yeah. So uh, we should make rusty nails since Branson's going to be here. Yeah. We could. <laughs> I don't think we're out of Dram Dram Beauty. Uh, they they make more. <laughs> that wasn't saying. the only bottle. Okay, I'm just saying we're out, and we're out of cheap scotch. So, oh well. They also make that. There's okay. plenty of I'm doers. Literally, at Big right, Red Liquor. Right. literally just saying what we're out right. of. All Brad right? is in charge of rusty nails. All right, I'm in and, charge of rusty and nails. And Matt is in charge oh, of prizes. Fuck. No, I'm not in charge of fucking anything. <laughs> you the prizes are. No, prizes are. <laughs> you haven't told me what we're giving them away <laughs> for. I don't know. Prizes I don't are. even know what to give away. <laughs> just, it's just something that'll distract me. The prizes, prizes are. 
I love it. Matt. Do you want me to save all my weird Chinese chips that I bought for we can do fat pastards that night? I was going to bring them tonight and I forgot them at home. Sure. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's our most exciting segment. It's well, it'll be live. It'll so be can, live. Oh, so people we, can watch we, us. Oh, wait, we're going to do the. We are doing. Don't say. We've got a, a grand finale plan. We'll do the, we'll oh. do the Fat Pastors next yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a grand finale plan oh, for next. For the, for the Fat Pastors. That's the last thing we do. Yeah. Oh, I mean, could you imagine doing it in the middle of a two-hour show? I mean, I don't, okay, well. Right? I guess I'll just throw up on my walk home. Well, when did you want to do it? That's going to hurt, too. Yeah, I did. Okay, so we'll explain it next sword week. Sword swallowing. We're doing yeah. sword swallowing. Might as well be. Yeah. Well. Michael. <laughs> Stop. Sorry. Just stop it. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Just, what am I doing? I don't know. Oh, gosh. So I, I moved my laptops around in preparation you for this. You are all fucked and up And it right is now. way weird. <laughs> hubba, hubba, hubba. Hey, hey, what are you drinking? Hey, hey, I've been thinking that if we're going to get through this, we're going to need some fluid. So, hey, hey, what are you drinking now? Yeah. Um. What? what By is the way, that? excellent job last week of taking twenty-five minutes to get to what are you drinking? Yeah, I don't even remember what we talked about for the first twenty-five rural minutes. Kings. Yeah, it was. Oh it yeah, was it was wor- it was well well worth it. <laughs> Matt, what's that See, bottle and, thing? And, and here's the thing. Michael Moncton acted like he didn't have fun. He had he fun. Ha- I saw pictures. Yeah, he, had he had a blast. On his face. When did he act like he didn't have fun? Well, um, on the podcast last week, he acted like he was he's never going shade. back, and he was throwing shade at it. Ah, he's full of shit. Well, he'll need some old timey candy, and he'll make. Oh, his way we can over there. we can make it so he never. Comes Somebody's going to need maple bites at some point, so he's yeah. going to have to. Come. He's gonna, what? Have you not had those? No. Oh, oh Christ! With what? the nuts in them? Yeah, there's like these. Oh, it's, oh. they've got to bulk it. Rural King. Oh, yeah, oh, they're very. Good. Oh my God, they're fantastic! Hey, by the way, if he doesn't, what want are they called? Maple something. If he doesn't want to be on the podcast, that can be arranged. No, he's no, talking I'm about, talking not about going Rural, back King. To Rural King. Oh, yeah. I thought you were talking, was, no, I thought no, you were no. talking throwing shade on the pot for the no, podcast. He was no, he throwing shade, acting like he didn't have fun at Rural oh, King. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah, he I'm calling did. bullshit on that. I had fun taking him to Rural I King. Did. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. And we got McFlurries. <laughs> yeah. Which were dude. fucking delicious. Getting laughed at by all the other. We had the windows down screaming Bob Seeger. No, was it Bob Seeger yes. or was it a journey? It was Turn the Page by Bob Seeger. It was Turn the Page. All right. right. What, what, what are we drinking? Oh, uh, you guys are having Bell Mead. Bell Mead. Yeah, that is from good. Last week. It's very good. It's. I think you've overhyped it a little bit. It's not the best bourbon I've ever had. No, it's, it's not good. the best. But it's good. It's good. It was surprisingly yeah. better than I expected. Yeah, yeah it's tasty. I mean, I kind of had low expectation, lowish expectations. Well, see, but listening to last week's episode, I had really, really, really high expectations. Well, that's because Michael well, we told you in the middle of the week. Michael told you in the middle of the week. You got to make sure you try it. Yeah, because I wanted to know what your thoughts were on it. So now I know. Okay, it's All good. Right. No, I mean I didn't say it was just okay. It's good. I'm just saying it's okay, not. Brad, I was expecting I it. it to you don't like the word blow my Fine. dick off, and it's. I mean, it's good. It's just not like. Does everything have to blow your dick off? It's not. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I I, theory, I, I, I mean, teased. I was going to play a song for for Matt, uh, for his theme song for today. No, this isn't it. Who is this? It's Bob Seeker. This is what we were singing in the drive-thru of McDonald's while we were waiting 20 minutes oh to get the flurry. The shake, was, shake machine was broke. 
And the guy next to us was dying because we had the windows down. <laughs> we were obviously, obviously tipsy. Oh, yeah. Can I play the song I was going to play for you? I hate Bob Seger, but I'll, like I'll sing it. I like this song. This song's all right. Metallica covered it pretty well, too, by the way. Yeah, they did. Yeah. What is it? You remember the song? Fucking Weird Al? No. It's Flogging Molly. I don't know Flogging Molly. Oh, really? No. Well, I know I miss more than a hit With a face that was launched to sink (laughs) And I seldom feel I don't know where this is going. Here it is. It's been the worst day <laughs> since yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> yeah. 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 That was today, buddy. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. That was. Uh, yeah. You're in a much better mood now, but when you got here, you're in a it was shit just, mood. Yeah. It was just. It's just. A t- it was a Tuesday, and it was a. It was a. Yeah. Have you not heard that song before? No. Well, that's one of my all-time favorites. I haven't listened to a lot of Flogging Molly now. Yeah. I mean, I know of them, but... Yeah. Yeah. Every day you see me, that's it's the worst day of my say, life. It reminded me of Office uh-huh. Space. What about today? Today, the worst day of your life? Man, yeah. That's messed up. up. Uh, what else? Did, did you guys already talk about what else you're drinking? Oh, from uh, yeah. uh, Westbrook Brewing Company in Charleston, South Carolina. Brad and I are both having the uh, orange creamsicle shake. Yeah, man, that's great. Pretty fun. Yeah, Pretty fun little is. beer. It really is. Pairs well with Chipotle. Oh, well, you know, what does it, I guess, honestly, I I could drink a Imperial IPA with Chipotle and it would still be good. So, yeah, it's just, it's just a really smooth, um, nice IPA. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's those milkshake IPA type things. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Right. Not overly sweet. It tastes like beer. Meditating. With Gary Busey. If you feel like you got a bird on your head, your imagination may be out of control. Hmm. I got okay. You fellas have a lot of growing up to do, I'll tell you that. Ridiculous. <laughs> um, all right, uh, let's go. Listening to Look on the Bright Side with Mr. Brightside himself, Matt Pollan. Mm-hmm. Always look on the <laughs> doesn't light mix too well. side No, it doesn't. <laughs> if life seems jolly rotten. What do you got? I got a tattoo. Ooh. Last nice one. one. Looks good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I was like very, very pleased. I haven't with seen it, it in, in real life. Yeah, it's pe- still peeling. peeling right now. Oh, it's looking nice. really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's cleaning up pretty well. Um It's like a drawing of Merton ish. It's Merton so Merton did a had a book of Poetry and reflections, crucifixes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, just real abstract kind of shit. Um, and so I really liked this one. I went through that book and I really liked it. It was actually uh, Kim Z's book. She left here. Oh, nice. and so I've had that on my shelf forever. Huh. And I always look through it. And I was like, "There's tattoos in there somewhere." Ooh. And so, so I kind of dug through. I was looking for another a new tattoo, and so I dug through it and found it. And it's basically a self portrait of him and a monk's in a habit with the hood up. And then I got a quote from him in, inside of it that says, uh, "What we what we have to be is what we are." Yeah, so I feel nice. like that encapsulates 
sort of my life philosophy at least is yeah. just somebody whatever. who does hate speech. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> just kidding. The fuck? <laughs> remember, remember Facebook last night? Oh yeah. Oh I yeah, I almost, almost took down the pub. Last yeah, night. I sure did. <laughs> that almost single-handedly destroyed. The I'm pub one. Last I'm night. one ban away from being banned for a year. Really? Because wow. because I have said things like fucking white people, like as a joke. Yeah. yeah. And I, said, I got I, and said, I got ban- like I, the yeah. last time I got banned for a week, and the next time I think I get banned for like a year. They banned you for a week. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even remember that. Yeah, I fuck, it, was it was like recent. not long ago, yeah. and then like before that, it was like a year ago or so, two years ago. For some, wow. like, I posted a picture, like, oh, it's for somebody's birthday. I posted a picture and it said, happy birthday, dickhead. And it was like a drawing of a guy with yeah. a dick for a head. And that was oh, apparently offensive. That. Like, yeah. like being fucked, Facebook. Fuck you. I got Jesus my Christ. my uh, my trigger Eat was a uh, dick. Mark I, I said, fuck Christians. Yeah, you can't use religious language. You can't no. use race. Yeah. You say fuck anything, anything. Basically, at this point. They're yeah. Ban you. Yeah. yeah. It's. So yeah, you almost took down the puff. I almost did. Like, yeah. Because of our because ad, I'm, because because our I'm, admin. Because yeah. I'm a moderator. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're gonna need to take Matt off of so admin status. Might have to take <laughs> Matt off admin. Just let us know right before you. Yeah, please. You... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> would have wanted that way. Um. Anyway, see, I got a tattoo. Uh, if you ever looking for a tattoo place, Evil by the Needle in Bloomington. Well, I mean, how many people live close enough that they're going to go to A that? few. <laughs> anyway, uh, go see Casey. She does an excellent job. She did my Mary tattoo, and she did my, I've my got one tattoo. I've so. got one cooking. So I'm getting. I'm probably getting another one December, January. I went to the Andy so. Warhol Museum nice. and got some yeah. inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> Is it bananas? No, it's not a get banana. It's a Campbell's soup can. It's not a Campbell's soup can either. Different colored bananas? Yeah, you could. That'd be cool. Yeah. Like right I mean, that is one of my favorite Velvet Underground albums that he produced yeah. and did the cover art for. Pretty good album. Yep. All right, Brad. Um, uh, what, what are we doing? Bright side, bright side. Bright side. Oh, uh, I went on vacation last week. Yeah. I was on vacation last week, and it was uh, wonderful. Nice. Uh, Mandy and I went without Sans Children, uh, which was, first what's, of all, that what's, was... What's that like? Yeah, well, it was it was pretty great. Um, went to Pittsburgh. Did they call you, the kids? No. Oh wow! No, they nice. didn't. Um, went to Pittsburgh, Be- like so. Okay. Originally, we were going to go to New Orleans, and then like a week before, we were supposed to fly there. Um, like news reports were saying, weather forecasts were saying they were going to get hit with like a Category Four hurricane, like yeah. a day before we got there. Well, we're not going to do that, so yeah. we fucked off of that plan and uh, decided we like okay. So and then we were well, we were well, we've got flight vouchers now. So we will book well booking that close to anywhere. Yeah, that close to time. Anywhere yeah. was going to be ridiculous. So yeah. I was like, well, fuck, we'll just we've got 12 months to use those vouchers anyway. So it's like we were like, let's go somewhere we can drive that we've never been. We like kind of like want to start exploring cities we haven't been to. Like just, Branson. No, God damn. God Branson. damn it, Michael. Fuck Branson. <laughs> I would just dude. If I go to Branson, it's going to be literally to drive through Branson to get somewhere else. We should, uh, we should do the the fifth anniversary in Branson. <laughs> oh my god! Do they have a Wayne Newton Theater? We could do. Oh it in? my yeah. god! <laughs> we well, could do a we could do a trio. That <laughs> might be the greatest idea. <laughs> do a we've trio. Ever we could had. do a trio of Donka Shane. Yeah. <laughs> Donka Shane, darling, Donka Shane. Thank, Thank you for all. 
the joy and pain. I recall Central Park in fall. How you tore your dress. What a mess. I confess. Something, something. Dog. All right. Uh, so anyway, we decided to go to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Um, because for one, I'm like a, a drawn to like old Rust Belt towns for some reason. Like I want to go to Detroit, Cleveland. Like those towns are kind of on. Uh, some of them are kind of a back on the up and up. Um. Anyway, so we went to Pittsburgh and had a. Oh wait, wait, wait. Oh god damn it! Are we? No, it's good. It's good. Okay. All right. It just wasn't showing the <laughs> the me, pictures man. all of a sudden. Anyway, had a wonderful time. Met up with some of turds, which was awesome. Uh, with some of our our supporters uh, that live in the Pittsburgh area, and it was absolutely fantastic. We had a great time. Pittsburgh, I I fell in love with the city. Like, honest to God, if you get a chance to go to Pittsburgh, I could move there tomorrow. You want to be a Steelers fan? I, I could be, I guess. Yeah. I think you get rid of Rapeless Burger first. Uh, yeah, I was uh, going to say, yeah. yeah. Get, get rid of the, the uh, serial rapist as a quarterback. <laughs> Maybe I'll root for you. Um, God. But anyway, we just, we had a, a wonderful time. Just, yeah, you had some great pictures. Yeah, it was just, it was just a, we just had a really great time walking around the city. Went to the Andy Warhol Museum, which was fucking awesome. I'm a massive Andy Warhol fan now. Um, nice. Like, I, I always kind of liked his stuff, but I didn't kind of get it. But when you look at his entire career, yeah, like, the way they had the museum set up, you start at the top, like, on the seventh floor, and you work your way down. So, like, the seventh floor was, like, his beginning stuff. Mm-hmm. And to see, like, his progression and, it, it like, his art makes a lot more sense to me now. Well, like, it, it's interesting. You know, I re- you know, I read that. I finished that Robert Irwin book I'm almost week. done with it. I finished no, no it spoilers, this week. No spoilers. No spoilers. Don't spoil it. There's no spoilers. Yeah, he was just saying he. I, know, I finished. I I'm just. I'm just saying I haven't. I'm finished. Okay. It I, well, I, I'm not. So I'm, I finished the book. So my like right now, my interest in art is that like a. I want to go to a museum yeah. and see if I can approach it differently. Yeah. Like in a way of looking at things like he did, like space and presence right. and yeah. uh, in energy flow and that kind of thing through your through the art, like whatever that art is. Because sometimes you walk in an art museum and go, "What the fuck yeah. is that?" Well, there's a reason they did that. Yeah. And after yep. reading that book, I have a, di- a different. I want to. I want to have a different approach when I go to a museum. Yep. So, and it was interesting to see like why he decided to do pop art, mm-hmm. which is what he ended up doing. And because he started as a, he was as a basically a ad agency. Yeah, oh. he did art for like ad agencies. Is how he started, and it was like, oh well, that fucking makes sense yeah. now. Like, yeah. so anyway, just it was just a great time. The the people we got to meet up with from the pub just wonderful people mm-hmm. we had could not have had a better time w- really looking forward to going back at some point you can do some name drops of who you met up with i mean i don't know if they want their name said so okay. i'm not going to say names but you know who you are they know who they are um and it was just it was just great so all right yep. um oh yeah, yeah uh it was fall break for and i gotta hang out with my kids it was good yeah good so, yep yep um that's all I got. <laughs> all right, move on. It was fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was an okay week. It was fine. <laughs> all right, got to hang out with the kids. It was all right. It was all right. Yeah. I think that's. I think yeah. that's a pretty like a logical response. It is, actually, yeah. yeah. I got to hang out with the kids. It was, it was fine. Right. Yeah, it's good. We played uh, kids settlers of Catan. Oh, so that was good. Huh. My oldest wants settlers for Christmas. Oh, well, he come down here. We'll play. 
I mean, he Elijah played down here. It. He played down here once, and yeah. that's why he kind of Elijah likes it. Beth it. likes it. I'll play. I just, it. I mean, I fucking hate games like that. But really, the, yeah, I like. Settlers. I just like board games in general, I or do. just like most of the time, I just can't. I just fucking hate them. Anyway, oh. sorry, I'm a kind of a sorry. Scrooge when it comes to that. All right, let's do music time. Can we do poetry. Mu- uh, we can do. Yeah, sure. I actually had one ready. Yeah, all right. They were Oscar Wilde at heart, and they ripped off Emerson. They put the come in Cummings. They put the dick in Dickinson. Welcome to the Polly's Poetry Corner. Take it away, Polly. The amount of poems I wrote after midnight is shocking. <laughs> after jerking. No, this one's for me. In all great poets uh, label the times that they wrote their poems. I did. Absolutely did. <laughs> uh, this is this one was actually for Beth. So, Like uh, uh, the girl, the, the woman in uh, Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Matt is Angela Lansbury. Yeah. <laughs> Murder, Matt wrote. Yep. <laughs> okay. This one's called Rich Man. Oh, Mrs. Potts. I, I struck gold. In a coffee house fog, more wealth than I knew, waited for me to look and find. I continued to seek, continued to search, hoping to find. Wait, I found it and then I sought for it? Oh. Hoping to find the fortune I knew existed, digging deeper <laughs> over the passage of time, acquiring more With wealth in each, in each passing minute. <laughs> I'm finding more than I could ever dream, and I'm happier than I could ever be as the richest man under heaven. Mm. Under heaven, yeah, yeah, yeah. That three-tiered universe there. <laughs> Excellent Dante, Under Dante in theology, hell. there, buddy. Uh, all right. Well, music I was time. at Johnson, so <laughs> music time. We're gonna play some music now. All right. Uh, I'll have to give our listener Kyle Ware an assist on this one. He posted right. for Music Monday. I'd never heard of this person. Barty Strange. Did you get new glasses? No. Really? I mean, like, months and months ago? I just not know. That's great. I've got new ones coming. You're going to hate them. Um, why, why would I hate them? Everybody's going to hate them. I'm just telling you right now. I hate them. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Barty Strange. He posted for Music Monday. Kyle posted this, and I had never heard of this person. I'm like, all right, download it. It's a fucking great album. I need to re-listen to it, because I had it downloaded and listened to it, and it didn't grab oh, me. Oh, man. The album is not the right frame of the mind. The album is called Live Forever. Uh, this song is called Boomer. Hey, bro, hey, bro, hey, bro, look, I'm the Mac. And that was way before I did the ziggies in the act. That's that good. I, I know he mixes genres a lot. Yeah. yeah. Genre yeah. hopping. The money There's... It's like indie rock and hip hop and R and B. Like it's really good. Okay, I need to revisit those things. God damn right. That's good. Yeah, I really like it. It's like it's like a. Th- 11 song 36 minute album I mean, it's like wow. really concise yeah. and just really well done man I listened to the whole thing yesterday really really enjoyed it so, nice thanks Kyle Matt, uh, been looking forward to this album uh, Open Mike Eagle have you listened to this one yet Brad? I have I, I 
I know you're just a bigger fan of rap. You love, but you like. I mean, you. I know you've liked his last couple. They're okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. This, I mean, they're fine. I just yeah. don't listen to a lot of it's it. Eagle I mean, Eye Cherry new product. No, it's not. <laughs> so you don't shit on his. It's, when you shit it's on Eagle Eye Cherry. Why is it always <laughs> Eagle Eye Cherry's brother is yeah, open? Eagle Eye like Cherry's brother. <laughs> you said cherry. I never said cherry. What I said say? open mic eagle. Oh, Mike Eagle Eye. It sounds like Eagle Eye Cherry. <laughs> open Mike Eagle. Yes. Open Mike Eagle oh, Eye Eagles, Cherry. Right. It's a new. It's a new collaboration. <laughs> Stay tonight. Every douchebag at, at Johnson with a guitar. Oh, I never learned, learned how to play I never that learned song. that somehow. For some reason, I never learned that. Um, I might though for next week. I might do that for the uh, distractathon. Oh, gosh. <laughs> fucking a. We'll do a sing along. We should do a worship set. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've been looking forward to this album. Uh, I want to know you. <laughs> just play like all like night like mid nineties early aughts stuff. A, man, Matt fucking Matt Redman night. Is the air I breathe? Your holy spirit me. <laughs> Yeah, we'll sing them all like Aaron Neville. And I love you. <laughs> Better is one day Better is one day in your house. I have no agency of my own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway. The artist is Open Mike Eagle. The album is Anime, Trauma, and Divorce. Uh, it's very specific. The That's song right. is called Death Parade, the opening track. Oh, <laughs> Eagle Eye Cherry's really changed his sound. I like it. But we had up in the land on Damn, she reached out and put her hands on me. But then we knew we had the math wrong. Shit, we took a bad fall, bad fall. Look, but we had up in the land on Damn, she reached out and put her hands on me. But then we knew we had the math wrong. Should have been cool. But dude got screwed up, his shit got burned up, so he vocals. fucked her yeah, up, and so she good, turned man. big. I got chewed up, this shit fucked me up, so yeah. I'm yeah. gonna fuck yeah. you it's up. Good. It's good. I like it. His, uh, his album from 2017, uh, Brick Bot. Oh, fuck, what's it called? Damn it. Uh, Brick- Save Tonight. No, it's not Save Tonight. <laughs> Tomorrow will be gone. Fight the Break at Dawn. No, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Eagle Eye uh, Cherry dropped a brick, record brick, in 2018. Are you serious? Yeah. Brick Body Kids. Fucking why? Brock Bitty, <laughs> brick Body Kids Still Daydream was this 2017 album. It's awesome. What about Karate Kid? Michael, what do you got? No, hold on. I want to play another one. Because who what, fucking yeah. cares? Uh, Sturgill Simpson. Yeah. Put a- Eagle Eye Cherry. This <laughs> <laughs> premise. Number one song. I've been losing it again. Barely knowing where I am. Sounds like a fucking Lumineer song. Yeah, it is. Kind of does. Like every <laughs> night before. Whoa! whoa, whoa. Hey! Hey! Ho! Every minute is a week. Break of dawn, 
Sorry. Uh, Sturgill Simpson put out an album of bluegrass. Yeah. Just covering his own songs in Good. bluegrass. If you like bluegrass, this album's fucking great, man. I listened to it today. Yep. It's just really nice. So this is a life ain't fair and the world is mean. Album's called Cut and Grass, Volume 1. That's my kind of bluegrass fan. It's great. If you listen to this album, no, it's I need fucking to. It's great. Them songs leave everything else to me. I love it, dude. Well, my daddy was a highwayman, but he never wrote any old country song. I've all never stayed out raising hell with the Haggard Jones. But it raised the proud Clomina's daughter, and I'm proud to be her son. She told me, though, I don't care if you hit it big because you're already number one. And that's Sturgill's a giant fuck you to the music industry, I, man. Like, he's he does been, whatever yeah. he wants. He does whatever. He's in a great position because he's already been rejected yeah. by the Nashville country yeah. like scene. Yeah. And so you can just fucking... Like, his last album was just a rock album. Yeah. It had, there was no country no. to it at it all. It was fucking great. And he's like, too. fuck it. I'll put out a bluegrass album yeah. that covers of my own music. Yeah. He just does whatever he wants. Right, I'm going to do two then. All right. Uh, Kevin Morby. Oh, that's a good album, Good too. album. Yeah, uh, listen to that. So... I'm not sure which song to play. I'm just going to play the... I'll play number three, I guess. Is that um, where you got your new glasses? Morby Parker. No. I didn't get them from Morby Parker, Michael. <laughs> I don't even have my new glasses yet. <laughs> Swallow bread. You said you ordered them online. I did. It's not Morby Parker. This episode nope. is sponsored by the generic off-brand Warby Parker. Brad's got to go spit in the sink. <laughs> Morby Parker. The Walmart brand. <laughs> <laughs> Brad literally had to get up and spit in the sink. Um. Anyway, uh, Kevin Morby put out an album a couple years ago that was fantastic, and this one is, is very, very different. It's way mellow. It's very, uh, it's very Velvet Underground. Like that was the vibe I got from it. I mean, sort of. Okay, that's what I got from okay. it. If you didn't, then I don't give a He's, shit. Uh, he knows about uh, Andy Warhol now. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he only produced one of their albums, so fuck you. And I've liked Velvet Underground forever. This is the title track, Sundowner, from the album Sundowner by Kevin Morby. Maybe. Morby Get your tail Oh, I'd like to have That sunny in me See, I like the sun But I start to run Oh, the moment that The sun runs from me I am a sundowner so live and leave. I am a sundowner. Anyway, yeah. Don't yeah. Nice. really, really dug that album, man. Real yeah. low key, real like I said, real velvet underground. I really dug it. Nice. Um. Okay. So there's a lot of women out there that are making some really awesome songs about empowerment. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the this song, I, I I've really just been enjoying that. I don't know genre that strong women making music. I like. Um, so this is uh, Daniela Mason. Uh, the song is called "Woman Lover Powerful," and I just I really fucking like it. So. I know the power I have as a woman. Like that. Yeah, who is that again? That's uh, uh, Daniela Mason. Nice. So really enjoyed. So that I feel one. like 2020 is the year where women are just fucking done. Yeah, it does like, feel like. And I say that in, I feel like, like, in the greatest and, way. Yeah, I, that's what I mean. I say that like cheering them on, sisters. Fucking burn it down. Yeah, burn it the fuck to the ground. Like the sooner that we can have more female leaders, the better this country will be. Period. It's just it's been that has been bared out all over the fucking world. Uh, vote for Biden here. Fucking Finland, yeah. New Zealand, yeah. that are yeah. all led she by got women. Elect, she got like, reelected on a landslide. I mean, like, yeah, fucking hell, dude. Like, seriously, sisters, burn it to the ground. Yep. We're here for it. All right, I'm gonna do two for two. Do it. Um, this one's been in my uh, my little playlist that I have ready for this. Um, it is. Uh, I forget that how to say that name. Winnetka, Winnetka Bowling League, is the okay, artist. Okay. The uh, song's called CVS. <laughs> oh. I've heard of that band. I feel like I've heard of this band. I like how it dramatically changes the song does. Started to think I like the sound of you in the city. We drive on the cold mass pie. Churches calling from New Amsterdam And in a dream your future had a voice And he spoke like me I'm starting to think That I wanna buy you chocolate hearts from CBS Kiss you too hard and follow you west Sing you sad songs on a Sunday afternoon Yeah, I think I like to I don't know. I like it. Fun, fun little song. So, all right, let's go into the newsfeed. Yeah, man. I feel like it's been a long time coming for this (laughs) newsfeed. Here we go. Uh, Into the newsfeed as soon as I can find the. There it is. Lock up your fears, dry all your tears, refill your beers. We're headed into the newsfeed. Yeah. Brad, go ahead while I get some more booze. Um, Matt doesn't want to hear your news feed. Priest recorded having s- group sex on altar of Pearl River Church. Police say three arrested. What? Priest recorded having group sex on altar of Pearl River Church. 
<laughs> Just the name Pearl River. He was getting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely touched. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeesh. He, uh, he was he was stroking that pearl. Oh, he was. He God. found the pearl of great price. Yes. Oh wow. <laughs> what is it? He was walking on streets of pearl. Cyril, you can't put a price on good pussy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you call the pearly gates. Yep. Uh, the lights inside St. Peter's and Paul Roman Catholic Church and Pearl River were on. <laughs> St. Peter. Yeah. It gets better. We're on later than usual on September 30th, so a passerby stopped to take a closer look. Peering inside, the onlooker oh. saw the small parish's pastor half naked having sex with two women on the altar, according to court documents. The women were dressed in corsets and high heeled boots. There were sex toys and stage wow. lighting. And a mobile phone, as well as a separate camera, were mounted on tripods recording it all. Yeah, get it. The eyewitness took a video. Uh, and does anybody have the address that OnlyFans? <laughs> the eyewitness took, well, this OnlyFans is being posted from prison. Uh, is it illegal to have sex in a well, church? Well, apparently he's in, I mean, anyway, the I eyewitness. Mean, the church was probably closed, right? Uh, I, I mean, it wasn't locked, apparently. Oh, he'd walked in. Yeah, the eyewitness took a video and called the cook <laughs> a video. <laughs> this is some hot shit. Hey, police! Uh, I, I gotta get this. Officer then arrested, arrested Reverend Travis Clark, pastor. Well, I'm guessing former pastor of Saints Peter and Paul since 2019 on obscenity charges. Uh, the Archdiocese of New Orleans announced the priest's arrest, but would not give specifics about why he was arrested, nor would the police. Um, yeah, so... Hey, you want to see my Clark bar? That's what he said. No. Probably Public didn't. records additionally show that one of the women, Mindy Dixon... <laughs> Mindy Dixon. <laughs> hey, you're going to find the shocking. 41 is an adult film actor mm. who also works for hire as a dominatrix. I can't believe that Mindy Dixon isn't her real name. Uh, on a social media account associated with Dixon, a September 29th post says she was on her way to the New Orleans area to meet another dominatrix and, quote, defile a house of God. Wow. Well, so hmm. Dixon and Melissa Ching, 23, were booked on the same count as Clark. Police said the charge stems from obscene acts that occurred on the altar, which is clearly visible from the street. Okay. Well, I get that. So how we, how we feeling about this? So any of your pastors are installing... Sit in my face and tell me that you love me. Sit in my face and absolve me of my sins. If you're... Your pastor is sit on my face and absolve me of my sins. Is wanting to put blinds in the in the sanctuary. Now you know why. <laughs> yeah, I mean here here's here's the thing though. Hey, Catholic Church, let these priests fucking marry. Yeah, and have relationships, yeah. man. This is the shit that happens. Yep. Like yep. they're gonna find an outlet for their sexual mm -hmm. desire. So it's either gonna be altar boys or it's gonna be fucking a couple of hookers on a. Dominatrix, <laughs> right? Different for hire. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't care about this because, like, everybody, there, there's this thing about them. He's violated canon law. Fuck, who gives oh. a fucking shit? Canon law. Oh, what's that mean? He desecrated a sacred place. No, he That's had to sex. burn it down. He had sex on a wooden like thing in a church in a building. Like what wooden thing? The altar. Oh, like okay. it. It's it's just a piece of wood. Who fucking gives a shit? Yeah, that's right, it is. Now, who gives a shit? Am I right? Um, I, I mean, I just, I couldn't give a shit. 
Get, do your thing, man. I bet that was the hottest fucking sex. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's there's something about... There's something about that sex. <laughs> so, anyway. M- more power to you, buddy. I mean, um, close the blinds next time. Come on. Yeah, I mean, just whatever. do it at your house. Like, uh, he but, did. He did it at the house of God. <laughs> no. I mean, don't they ter- technically priests live at the church? I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he shits where he, he shits works. where he eats. <laughs> and eats and... He fucks where he eats. <laughs> I get on yeah, my well, Sounds like everybody did. I like I said, I bet that was the hottest sex ever. I love sausage. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Don't don't drag me into this. Fun fact: nothing is sacred. Who gives a shit? Uh, Where the guy who's the bottom is on the top, the right. guy's on the top is on the bottom. Yeah, I'm not sure of that scenario. Who was bottom or who was top? Well, I'm guessing there were multiple orifices, orifices being uh, penetrated with things, and yeah, I, I, I assume various he, things being licked. He was probably the middle. <laughs> Little Golden Gate action. He was uh, any and Audi at the same time. <laughs> oh my god! All right, Brent, uh, get, get us out of this fucking story. <laughs> Newsweek.com. Uh, women, woman woke up to find twelve foot snake trying to eat her. Yeah. Oh. Stop fucking po- tagging me. Here's the thing. Goddamn snake. The more stories. you let it bother you, the no, more they're going to do stop it. Stop fucking doing it. I don't want to be tagged in shit. Literally, this week, I got tagged in like eight goddamn things. Stop fucking tagging me and shit. <laughs> and they're getting the God. reaction that they wanted. Yep. Uh, I'll just leave the goddamn got, pub. I don't give you, a shit. Well, I mean, I'm please, tired of waking up to like please nine. Please don't blow it up before you I'm leave. tired of waking up to like nine different tags. God. <laughs> it's fucking obnoxious. It's hard on the top. Hey. <laughs> it's you know what hurts the most? A, a snake. A lack yeah. of respect. You know? That's what hurts the most. Who fucking cares if people tag That's you and shit? Just don't, or Nobody's Taco tagging Bell. you in anything. People tag me and stuff sometimes. Who cares? Sometimes. I got tagged like eight times who this week. Who fucking cares? It's fucking annoying. Who cares? I care. It's fucking annoying. Uh, Stop can I it. guess who tagged you? You'll, you'll know. <laughs> I know yeah. exactly who it was. Yeah. Uh, a snake that was being tracked by researchers tried to eat it. Apparently not very well. As she slept in her bed at night. The snake then returned to her home the following year to attack the dog. <gasps> yeah, didn't it say it, they moved it I like 600 feet away? The snake, well, hold on a minute. The snake, an Australian scrub python living in the I woodland. No it's got scrub. a mohawk where scrub it's ripped jeans. Like <laughs> no really, me. really into the cure. Uh, living in the woodland of Lockerbie Scrub Where's in Cape York Peninsula, in Australia. Had been fitted with a radio transmitter on in Boop. 2014. When the Boop. fuck was this? Boop. Oh, that was new. Boop. Okay. What are you doing? Boop. It was being tracked by a Boop. team led by Macquarie <laughs> University's Daniel Nadish. It's a radar, trans- radar tracker. Uh, by March 9th, it had moved around 300 feet to the immediate vicinity of the house. Of they didn't bother picking up the phone. Leanne Mears and her young family. Saying, hey, there might be a snake outside. Including a pair of children aged one and three years oh, old. Oh, Jesus. Scrub pythons are common in the area, non-venomous, and are not considered a threat to people, though they've been known to attack pets and small children. Barely so small children, not people. <laughs> Just... He's got a couple hole punches. 12 feet fine. long and weighing 10 pounds. This one was deemed capable of posing a threat to her kids. Well, yeah. 
However, because it was lying beneath a shipping container, it could not be extracted. Uh, Natich advised Mears to protect her children by locking the windows and doors of their room. High temperatures prompted Mears to leave her own door open, and she woke at 2.28 a.m. local time with her right leg in the grip of the snake. I'd never sleep again. Which then coiled around her body in what Natich and his colleagues describe as a predatory attack. I'd never sleep again. No, I Ever. wouldn't either. I'd never sleep again. I would need so much goddamn therapy. No. Like, Mears managed to break free and trap the snake in the kitchen and escaped without serious injury. The snake was released 650 feet away. How about like 30 miles away? 600 like, feet away. The goddamn thing is going to find its way back. Dude. Like in an, I'd after, been, I'd I'd been, in an afternoon. I'd have been think, fucking irate. I'd have been irate. In an afternoon, that thing will be back in her front porch. Yeah. Holy shit. On January 30th, the following year, it returned to the house and attacked her dog, leaving it unconscious. The dog survived and required resuscitation, and the snake was relocated even further away. 700 feet, probably. Jeez. So it's basically two football fields away. Here's the thing. That's all that further they Here's the that thing. goddamn snake. The guy says, I do not believe it's reasonable to consider scrub pythons any more of a threat to humans as they already were. Far less of a threat than your pet dog or lightning Except strike. This it's one because is, they didn't, you didn't wake up with a snake wrapped around you. This one's out for revenge. Yeah, man. This is fucked Who's up. tracking that fucking thing? Gumby? Barney? MacGruber. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. They have a tracker on it. They know where it is. They didn't bother calling anybody? Uh, apparently not. They, they were underfunded, so it's fine. Uh, excuse me. There is a, there's a giant-ass snake outside of your door, possibly. You might want to lock your shit up. <laughs> well, they told her to lock it up, but she just ignored them. There's like, a snake in my It's fucking pants. Australia. It's summer in Australia down there. spring in Australia. <laughs> I'm sure it's a nice balmy 150. I know. <laughs> Dude, fuck that continent, man. God damn it. You could not pay me enough Everything money in the world. Everything down there wants to kill you, Everything. strangle you, or It's like you, Florida, but somehow worse. <laughs> it's like Florida with more shit that can kill you. Yes. Uh, I'm going to do one more. Who cares? All right. There's a snake in my boat. <laughs> There's a snake on my leg. Uh, I'm looking forward to having a dream about a snake tonight. That'll be fun. That'll put me in a good mood for tomorrow. <laughs> Plane Sounds passenger, great. plane passenger caught smuggling gold nuggets and wrecked him to avoid taxes. Wrecked him, damn, damn near, near killed him. Indian Brick killed a guy. Indian, <laughs> Indian airport authorities uh, literally struck gold when they spotted a man no. walking oddly. Stop it! Hold on, when they spotted a man walking oddly and discovered he had about two pounds in bullion shoved up his ass. Chicken bullion? Man, how? No, not chicken bullion. It was beef. <laughs> beef stew. What the fuck? Like, I don't understand. I just don't understand. How do you get that much? I, I can't fathom I mean, that. That's a lot of gold in your asshole. Like, I mean, it just. <laughs> I feel like you've said that phrase before. Yeah, how, many but, how, how much gold he had in his asshole? Oh my god! How I don't understand how no. I really don't. And it's Lots it's not it's not like rounded. It's flat. No, I. Uh, well, if you if you stack them on, it's like together. Like how much anal relaxant would you have to take I to mean, like you got? I'm thinking you'd have to do some. There's a lot of practicing. You'd have to do some asshole training. Some I like to get fucking Lamas and shit. Start, start with a hot dog. Some anal key go up to. Can, a, you, can you need to reverse Lamas where you suck <laughs> things into you to a a, a bratwurst. 
Then go to cucumber. I, like, yeah, is, so I don't here's know. the thing: are these butt smuggling Eggplant. things. Is he shoving it up in there, or is somebody else helping? Baseball I mean, I would bat. assume he did it. Like, I, I feel like that would be pretty difficult to do. Then you just have to go to. I mean, I guess you got enough PVC pipe after that. <laughs> I mean, you would have. I mean, these are as big as PVC I mean, pipe. It's large. Yeah. It's a lot of gold. So. The Go Air passenger passenger arrived from Dubai on Tuesday at Kerala's Kanur Airport, where he tried to avoid paying an eighteen percent tax on his precious nuggets by smuggling where the sun don't shine. Officials so what did at, they do? They wait, 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 chip wait. off eighteen percent. So he had them, didn't want to pay for them, and just smuggled them in his Shoved asshole. Shoved up his ass so he didn't have to pay taxes on it. So, do they keep the gold now? I assume. Officials at the Air Intelligence Unit. They they got to run it through on pots and pans first. (laughs) Here's a great line. Officials at the Air Intelligence Unit mined the stash worth about $60,000 from the unidentified smuggler. Oh, I bet they mined it all right. (laughs) Yeah. Another passenger on the same flight was caught carrying more than three pounds of gold, though officials did not disclose if that traveler had concealed it the same way. On Wednesday, custom agents seized just under a pound of gold from a passenger who landed in Code, also known as Calicut, on Air Arabia flight from Sharjah in the United Arab, Emir- Emir- United Arab Emirates. It's beautiful this time of year. The gold was hidden in the traveler's underwear, so he didn't. He didn't go. This this guy was committed. The other guy was just a. He was yeah. hiding his butt cheeks. Yeah, he, he was just. He was half-assing it. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Why half-ass it when you can whole-ass two pounds of gold bullion? Uh, yeah. So. And eventually, you work your way up to Pringle scan. I guess. Honestly, put that in a Pringles can and then shoving up your asshole might be a little bit uh, easier. It probably would. At least it's round. I, yeah. Like, I could see, like, nuggets or some shit, but, like, a these time, are, like, a like, gold time capsule up your butt. I get, man. The physics of it is, is a little baffling it to is. me. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I mean, just pay the fucking tax, man. I, like, goddamn. Is it really worth, like, I mean, it's, it's only 18% of 60000 Hold on a minute. <laughs> Should be about three grand. Uh, say seven thousand, sixty thousand. Should uh, be around three grand, right? What did I say? Twelve percent. You said eighteen percent. I thought you said seventeen. Damn it, it was eighteen. Yeah, it should be around three thousand bucks. No, it's ten thousand eight hundred. Oh. okay. So that's yeah. that's considerable. That isn't as opposed sense. to shoving it up your yeah, ass. I mean, I guess I, here's the thing. I I don't. I wouldn't do it, but I get it. Like, you know. Who wants to pay ten, th- almost eleven thousand dollars in taxes? I don't know. I mean, I might put some blunts in a baggie and shove it up my ass, but like to keep it out of. Yeah, but gold blunts yeah, aren't yeah. gonna. I feel like those would fit a little bit better. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, all right, Matt, what do you got? Uh, <laughs> this is from uh, Yi Kai Global News in China. I'm sure this is reliable. Meow. Largest U.S. Chinese restaurant, Panda Express, enters China. <laughs> wow. In the I, same way that I don't that even care. I like Panda entered Express. that other guy. Dude, give me those. Uh, what are those greens? Oh, oh super greens. Green. Yeah, man. So freaking good. Yeah, they are. Um, they're cheese chicken. drinking. Oh, man. Panda Express, the biggest Chinese fast food chain in the U.S., has opened its first restaurant in Kunming. Um, I mean, it's got to be the equivalent of... A, of like McDonald's for us, right? Right. But somehow I, worse. I would assume. I mean, 
Although <laughs> serving like third-rate Chinese food in China probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, McDonald's <laughs> is third-rate American food. Yeah, but like, at least in China, it would be an American novelty. Like, well, I mean, this this restaurant was started in California, so I it's know, technically but that's what a, I, you know what's I, yeah. Well, you I mean, I guess, but like, like I don't a fancy know. restaurant in China is. It's kind of like when Starbucks recently opened their Pizza Hut first coffee shop in italy like don't fucking open one in italy they don't want you no. like they've yeah. got their own coffee yeah. culture like just fuck look what we can do with your yeah. food yeah look we can burn your beans yeah um you know what they call chinese food in china food food yeah. um a popular restaurant in china is uh, well there's two american restaurants that are popular considered fancy food is uh pizza hut and kfc mm. both are fine dining really yep um Anyway, so the chain's opened more than 2,000 stores in the U.S. Uh, and over after 40 years of growth. And they've uh, had U.S. Uh, $35 billion in annual revenue last year. So they're, they're, doing, they're doing okay. <laughs> I love Pigeon Express, man. It's I enjoy so it. It's I mean, it's, it, I, I, it is what it is. It like, is. I don't expect yeah. it to be like yeah. cuisine. It's yeah. like if I want fast food and I don't want a goddamn McDonald's or yeah. Wendy's or something, like it's a nice change of pace. Remember yeah. kids' cuisine? <laughs> yeah. That shit was great. I could go for one of those microwave brownies and the corn. Get a little corn. You know, corn sprinkles you know what we on do my for brownie. The we should see who can eat a hungry man dinner the fastest. I could definitely house a hungry man. I I beat you both in a nugget challenge. Nah, that's I, true. I'd put myself up against both of you. Depends on what the hungry man is. I mean, do we get to choose our hungry yeah, man? Yeah, I mean, you can choose. Your we would all have to be the same hungry man to make it like fair. It's all gonna be the same amount of food. Brad would have to get the one. It's not like Hungry Man. The one with like nine pieces of Salisbury steak. Or yeah. It's like, it's not just it's a <laughs> family meal. Like they'd all be the same size, right? Like Hungry Man. I mean, I like, would think so. It's not like Hungry Man and slightly less Hungry Let's Man. Let's do it. Let's, we'll do that. I'm not eating a fucking no. Hungry Man meal. No, you're the prize czar. I want a prize if I win the Hungry Man challenge. I'm not prizing. I'm not doing anything. I'm not fucking doing a prize czar. What the fuck? What the fuck is I, this? I really Be am. a team player. Yeah. Then for tell me what we're playing for. <laughs> I don't know. What games are we playing? Well, we're playing a game. You that, just said buy some prizes. Is that what I said? You did. Yes. No, I did. You're the prize owner. Yeah, there you go. Own something. <laughs> Jesus. God, man. You got anything else? Yeah, I do. I have a good story, but it feels like pointless right now. So, uh, from Tanks, good news. Um, Tanks a lot. <clears throat> He, he's your responsibility because you fucking laugh every time he opens his goddamn mouth. He's your fucking responsibility. That's how prison Mike says good news. Tanks, tanks, good news. Tanks. Nazis took a Jewish family's 16th century kettle, but their grandson got it back 86 years later. No fucking Nazis. Nazis. Why is this a good? Why are you having fucking, a good story for Nazis? Fucking Germans. Nothing the grandson famous. got it back after 86 years. Nazis? Fucking Nazis. I'm done. Say what you want about tenets of national socialism, dude. At least it's I'm, me. I'm not even reading the story. I'm done. Michael, what do you got? What is about Nazis? No. No, not reading it. Fuck you guys. All right. I'm done. I'm I like doing, how the I'm week, doing, I, the week I wasn't story. on, you were like Mr. Positive. Uh, I'm just doing one story. Positive Polly. What does that fucking tell you? Dude, bullshit. <laughs> no, what does that no, fucking no, tell it's a, you? It's a you issue, and I'll tell you why. Because Michael trolled the shit out of you last week, and you were fine. That's true. Not Are we this, really going to fucking do this? Yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's have it out. Let's do this. <laughs> no, we're not doing this. Michael, boy fight. Boy fight. All right. Uh, the New Yorker suspends Jeffrey Tubin 
Oh, God. Uh, for masturbating this. on a Zoom call. Yeah, he was like, oh, it was an accident. No, it fucking wasn't. <laughs> no. So he Nobody he, jerks off in thought, front of her on a thought, Zoom call. He thought his video was off. His camera was off. It's not off. that hard to figure it's out if your not, video's off. It's not that fucking hard. It's not. This is bullshit. This guy can eat a fucking dick. I apologize Fuck to my off. wife, family, and uh, friends, and coworkers. I believed I was not visible on Zoom. Just because you can't see your camera doesn't mean that Did they, they let him finish, or were they like, hey, dude, you're jerking off on the camera? Like, I thought I still had the audio. The they probably just let him go with the camera and be done. Oh. <laughs> I want off this podcast. God damn it, man. Oh. Yeah, so uh, he just is suspended. Like How is he Tuber, not fired? Am I right? I mean, he showed they said they were inve- to somebody. They said they were investigating. I'm like, dude. I'm so fucking sick of these guys that are like, oh, it was an accident. No, it you wasn't think, a you goddamn don't think it accident. Was an a- you don't think it was an accident? That no, it was an accident. Here's the thing. Zoom Here's the thing. Like, how fucked up? There is nothing less sexy than a Zoom meeting. Like, how the fuck? Well, he, he, he was just like, it wasn't It wasn't sexy. And so he was like. But that's what I'm saying. Like, how can you even be horny on a Zoom meeting? Like. Fuck you, man. I mean, if you have enough this Zoom is, meetings. This is fucking bullshit. Like, here's the thing. Okay, let's say it was an accident that his camera was on. It wasn't an accident that he was jacking off during a Zoom meeting. Well, yeah, that was not an accident. He definitely So he was literally looking at one of his female coworkers and jacking off. Oh. And his only thing was, oh, I didn't know my camera was on. Fuck you, man. Yeah, fuck this guy. Yep. So he deserves the Matt Lauer treatment. Go eat a shit. Eat a fucking cock. Just Isn't he thing. back on back on camera now, or is he gone? No, he's Matt gone. Lauer. No, he's yeah. he's a, he's a, he's plotting his comeback. He's a he's a, uh, he's a creepo too. All right, is there uh, any guy at this point that fucking isn't? I mean, it just like I don't get even get surprised anymore. Like, oh, so and so was a fucking serial rapist. Oh, well, I mean, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, nothing surprises me anymore. A uh, Thai teen lived out every man's worst nightmare Uh after a snake sunk its fangs into his penis while he was on the john. See, this is fucking terrifying to me. It's terrifying. It's the worst. And there's a picture of the the snake in the toilet with blood all over the toilet Oh, my God. (laughs) Yep. Uh, It tried hiss. Remember him. Tried to hiss member. No, ah. no, no, no. No, 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 no. Um his his near his his near serpent circumcision occurred Tuesday, approximately twelve miles north of Bangkok, uh, after the reptile allegedly infiltrated the plumbing. So what did it have like a fucking blowtorch or something? I know. Like how does this torch? happen? I know. I don't understand how this happened. He was watching it's smartphone. like the reverse Tim Robbins. <laughs> yeah. He was watching <laughs> smartphone videos on his on the toilet when all of a sudden he felt searing pain in his nether region. Dude. God. Four God foot damn it, man. <laughs> it clamped onto the tip of his penis. <laughs> Matt's never going to shit inside again. <laughs> I don't know if you want to do it outside either. Odds are probably higher outside. <laughs> He's going to shit into a hermetically sealed bucket. <laughs> I'm just going to buy some sawdust and just shit in that. <laughs> like, 
Did you guys intentionally bring this shit this week about Snake Story? I just want to know. I'm just curious. <laughs> like, both of you motherfuckers had Snake Stories. Like, do you guys just, like, is this the group I'm not in that you guys, you fucking assholes just talk to each other about what you're going to do to me this week? He texted me today. He's like, you know, we have to do snake stories tonight, right? You fucking cunt. <laughs> you both of you. It was right after you fuck, were so mad about fuck it. Fuck the both of you. <laughs> I hate you. I fucking hate Tuesdays. <laughs> I fucking hate Tuesdays. Look at him, though. Look how happy you've made him. Well, that's glad. I'm glad he. I'm glad he's happy. <laughs> he is losing his shit. <laughs> Someone actually sent me the one uh, that Brad used and said he needed to use this this week. God, and I had that one. On Fuck all for, of like, you. Three weeks. Fuck every one of you. God damn Here's it, the man. Thing, when you react like this, it just makes it worse. Well, I'll tell you what. If you guys start tagging me and shit, I'm not even opening it. I'm not responding. I'm not opening it. Go ahead and tag me all you want. That's what I told it's you today. It's not getting open. I fucking I told you today. <laughs> I, got ta- I got tagged in something in a place I'm not even part of. Oh, God. God damn it, man. I didn't even open it. I was like, I'm not doing it. Nope. Not even looking at it. Oh, man. God. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you. This is this is literally everything I fucking talked about in therapy for my junior high years coming back to me. They talked about in junior high they teach you about snakes. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's a long history of snakes. Who's your favorite wrestler? Jake the Snake Roberts. Your favorite porn star, Ron Jeremy. That's <laughs> John Holmes. That big 14-incher. <laughs> Are you done, Michael? <laughs> Are you done with your stories? Yeah, I'm done. Can we go into whatever the fuck we're doing for food? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you fucking touch me. No, 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 no. Get your fucking hands off me, brother. (laughs) Oh, shit. You've made great strides today. No, I fucking haven't at all. Matt, you're loved. No, I'm fucking not. You're loved. No, this is how I love people. I I only tease people that I love. Oh, I'm so tired of hearing that. I do. You know that's true. Well, I was the most loved person in junior high, then, if that's the case. <laughs> no, I said, I do that. That's I what fucking everybody tease. says. Only tease the people. No, I'm pretty love. sure the shitheads in our neighborhood were <clears throat> definitely not doing that. No, they weren't. They were fucking <laughs> Here's the thing. They're probably all in prison. So don't worry. Yeah, that's like the only consolation. They're all guilty of murder. <laughs> I think, what, two people that you graduated high school with are in prison for murder? At least. I think at least it's two. At least two. Yeah. yeah. One's... One was responsible for a very high-profile murder in Indiana yeah. years ago, and one literally, what, burned his girlfriend to death in a car or something? Jesus. Like, I, I can't yeah. keep track. Honestly. God, your, your class is a bunch of 
fucking rejects, man. To tell you how bad my class was, I finished 17th. <laughs> it didn't try. It didn't try. Uh, our 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 uh, valedictorian didn't even have a 4.0. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. You had one of the dumbest classes to ever go through that high school. Really, that's that's really set the stage for my entire life, to be honest with you. If we're going to be completely just, honest. Just decades of mediocrity. It was baked into you from a very young age. It really was. <laughs> Why does Matt drink so much? <laughs> oh. Hey, cheer, cheers to 17th, buddy. Mm. Come on, cheers. 17th. What? You finished 17th in your class. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cheers. Come on, give me a cheers. I'm out of beer. Come on. There we go. Up top. Invisible. All right. <clears throat> Not well, trying caught up in college, though. What's that? Not trying caught up in college. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear that. At a Bible college, you caught up? Yeah. Oh, wow. I got a D on my first test in college. I was like, oh, you have to try here, I guess, a little bit. Okay, well. Yeah, sort of. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, more than high school. It would have helped if they had competent professors, but they fucking didn't. That's they had like three. They had, like, they had two or three yeah. of them, yeah. And I did okay in those classes. <laughs> What's the test on Dreamcoat, David? <laughs> <laughs> It's the ones that were fucking 85 and had no teeth that I couldn't pass their classes because they were fucking useless. They have teeth? Dr. Seister, remember him? Uh, he was gone before I was I had there. him at 7 a.m. on a goddamn yeah, fucking was, Saturday oh, for psychology. On a Saturday? Dude, I had a system- And he used to laugh like this. <laughs> I, had a, I had a systematic theology class with a 75-year-old professor at 7.30 in the morning. Me too. And it was... And he was a wonderful person, but I mean, how I didn't... <laughs> How I ever got out of bed on those dates. I honestly can't believe suicide is not higher at Bible college I mean, than it is. Seriously. Classes system, off on Mondays? We didn't have when I got Monday. there, yeah, it was because only, we had our ministries on the weekend. When I got there, it was only Tuesday through Friday classes, yeah, which they, was nice. They finally canned that shit. Um, but that Saturday God shit. damn. I had like 7.30. Winter, when it's dark out in a freezing cold, systematic theology and having to walk across For an hour and a half. For an hour and a half. That's what I, the, when they went to four day weeks. So it was our fucking, every class was an hour. It was and a half. fucking nightmare. I don't know how I ever got through it. <laughs> All right, uh. let's go into foofy. Um, so this is a uh, different type of foofy for us. Um, Tim Nash and David Benjamin Blower of the uh, Nomad Podcast slid into our DMs about a project they've been working on. Uh, they had felt pretty overwhelmed by the dawning realities of climate change, uh, so they asked themselves. Uh, what they as podcasters uh, could do. And they had an idea, an online pod march. Uh, we have caused a turning point in the earth's natural history. Everybody now is a podcast, uh, which is what you're about to hear um, about what it means to be a human on the threshold of global climate emergency uh, in a time of systematic injustice and runaway pandemics, scientists, activists, uh, farmers, poets, and theologians talk bravely and frankly about how the biosphere is changing, about grief and hope in an age of social collapse and a mass extinction, and about taking action against all the odds. Um, so this is a this is a, a, a basically a podcast within a podcast, if you will. Uh, there are contributions from Extinction uh, Rebellion founder Gail uh, Bradbook. Brad Brooke, uh, the climate scientist Kevin Anderson, uh, Demarius Albuquerque, um, 
who works for farmers uh, with farmers in Nicaragua, uh, the theologian and poet Rowan Williams, and the poet uh, Padraig Otuama, um, and many more. Uh, there's even a nod to uh, Star Wars in there, which I, I really like. So, uh, yeah, this is um, – we wanted to be a part of this because climate change is something that uh, with all the shit that we've dealt with in 2020, um, this is something that is there. California's and, on fire. Yeah, this world the is West literally is on fire. On fire. Yep. Um, I was listening to a song today. I, I'm going to actually play a little bit of it. It's called Making Do. Uh, and I was like, shit. But I'm going to play that real quick. To the next generation, Merry Christmas. Um, yeah, it's like shit is real. Um, we are in a, in a climate crisis. Um, and, uh, we're we're in, uh, and they talk about how the pandemic, uh, is affected through climate change and, and some of our, um, the way that we, uh, interact with the world that we, that we have. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think it's super important. We wanted to support what they're doing, um, by having you guys listen to it. Um, I listened to it yesterday. Um, it's really, really good. Um, yeah, a couple songs in there. Um, just really, really good stuff. So, uh, without further ado, let's go further up and further in. Further up and further Further up there, yeah. The poet, Padraig Tuma. The tree of knowledge. Having eaten only one fruit from it, we cut the tree of knowledge down. We broke its boughs, ripped it from the land it fed and fed from. Some man made branches with machines. Some woman cut new leaves from steel. The tree sent up its sighs, lamenting that the land it held together could no longer now be held together. From the tree's remains we made paper, but words kept on appearing on the pages with warnings that we didn't want to read. We burned it, dumped it, waited. We wanted something else to save us. My name's Dr. Gail Bradbrook. I'm one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion. 
first experienced a sense of utter dread and panic around what we're doing to the environment as a really young woman. I guess I was nine actually and a factory was being built on some land and I didn't have any say in it and I felt really aggrieved. And it's been there over the years, but I remember it really strongly in 2013 when I looked at images of tar sands. But mostly it's just been this feeling of hidden, a hidden buried feeling that nothing's really happening here and we're just letting this thing run and run. And then last summer, I started to really grieve and panic and recognise that I hadn't fully faced the meaning of these times. And it's quite an unravelling when you do. I definitely have had those feelings before, but there was some weight of it that came in in the summer. I, I, I think there's something in the consciousness that's shifting personally. And, you know, it's an opening up that happens when you grieve because the price of... Um, love is grief and grief opens the space for love and I think that's what's happening right now is we're facing what we've been doing to our home and our home is heaven on earth and I look around now with my heart more open, feeling more courageous and I look at nature and I'm in love. I feel hopelessly in love with life at times and I think that's the gift of grief. The climate scientist, Professor Kevin Anderson. Let's just use the barrier reef that people, people know about, they've heard about. That at 1.5 degrees centigrade, the estimates are that we, we probably will have destroyed something like three quarters of the barrier reef. But if you go to 2 degrees centigrade, you pretty much wipe out that whole ecosystem. So we're, t we're not t at 1.5, it's not as if this is, this is a good position to be in. It's probably the least worst position we can be in. And across a whole suite of really important emblematic ecosystems we see high levels of destruction at 1.5 but most of them have elements of these are still surviving as you head towards two degrees centigrade then the, the level of destruction of these ecosystems becomes more severe to levels where sometimes some of them will not simply will simply not recover and so whether it's in in terms of sort of um, rainforest cover whether it's in terms of things like the the coral reefs and so forth but then in terms of your pest movements and agriculture but in terms of human systems of the exposure to additional droughts and heat waves um, or severe weather conditions increased sea level rise as that plays out in the longer term almost all of the things that we think about in terms of climate change get noticeably worse between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade now clearly 2 degrees centigrade is better than 2.5 and 2.5 is better than 3 but I think what was important in that report was saying, here's a set of impacts that look pretty bad at 1.5, and here's a set of impacts at 2 degrees centigrade, and they're noticeably worse. I cannot envisage how we can now hold to a 1.5 degree centigrade of warming. I cannot imagine scenarios that would deliver uh, such rapid cuts in emissions. But I think there's still a reasonable to outside chance we can hold below 2 degrees centigrade of warming. I hope to be wrong. I, I really would like to be wrong on the 1.5. I hope other people can come up and say, well, here's, here are ways that we can do this. It's the area I work on, and I can't understand how you would make those sorts of changes rapidly enough. The only way that I can em envisage it is that if we make all the reductions that are necessary for 2 degrees centigrade by actually cutting back on our emissions, that's primarily through three phases. One is consuming less energy in the very near term. In the medium term, to dramatically improve our use and efficiency of that energy. 
And the third part is to switch our energy across to zero carbon options, very rapidly indeed. If we do all of those things in line with two degrees centigrade, and this technology that a lot of people talk about now called negative emission technologies, these don't exist. These are in a few pilot schemes, but mostly in the imagination of professors and academics and on computers and so forth. If those can be made to work and we do everything possible for two degrees centigrade on the outside chance, then we might, if we're lucky, we might hold to 1.5. I think it's incredibly dangerous, but we're now relying on those technologies that don't exist, not only for 1.5, but also for two degrees centigrade. Indeed, if you look at some of the scenarios developed for the IPCC, even some of the scenarios for three degrees centigrade also assume lots of negative emission technologies. The benefit of those, at least the short-term political benefit of those, is that it means we haven't got to reduce our emissions as rapidly as we otherwise would do. So if you come to a country like the UK, you've got our Committee on Climate Change, who are sort of a semi-independent um, arm of government in many respects. And their latest report, which a lot of people hailed has been wonderful, um, basically has just ramped up, increased still further their original assumption about negative emission technologies. So they can say things like, yes, you can expand aviation in the UK. It's probably okay to have some shale gas and some further um, offshore oil and gas exploration if we're careful about this. Um, all of this is still possible within our Paris commitments. But the caveat to that is if our children can, can develop and deploy at huge scale these negative emission technologies. don't know exactly how things will play out I mean, things are not looking positive when we're rapidly changing um, sort of ecosystems and social systems then there are going to be lots of problems and issues and challenges and lots of pain and suffering that will emerge from these rapid changes so we're seeing pest movements changes in rainfall changes in heat waves changes in migratory patterns of species and of people as people will will certainly some parts of the, of the world will be moving to find more appropriate you know, um, areas that are climatically more suitable to live in and often these will play out um, against other existing tensions. Some people have argued that climate change was one of the exacerbating factors and let's be clear it exacerbated factors it wasn't causing what happened in Syria. So you know, they had had a very long drought um, which had some implications on stressing certain communities. But then obviously on top of that and what much more important than that were all the other stresses that occurred there. But this is with just one degree centigrade of warming, what we're already starting to witness is climate change exacerbating existing problems elsewhere in the world. Um, and in Darfur, we saw changes in rainfall patterns that looked like they were linked to ongoing climate change. And that created, because of the way the pasture lands were used and because of the migration of some of the tribes and so forth and cultures within those communities that occur every year, that people weren't moving on as fast as they had done previously. So the next group were coming in and you got you've got fighting again there and lots of deaths as a consequence. So climate change plays out in, in ways that it, it builds on other tensions, at least at the moment. I think as we get increased levels of warming, what we're going to start to see is that climate change is sometimes the actual direct, the principal cause for some of these, for some of these um, social frictions that we see around the world. 
You can also see in things like Haiyan, which was a you know, devastating um, typhoon in the Philippines a few years ago, or indeed in Mozambique more recently, or more, you know, more well covered in the media, things like Sandy uh, in New York, the storm event there, that we've already seen about 20 centimetres of sea level rise as a consequence of the additional warming from burning fossil fuels. And we are, going to go, we are going to see ongoing increases in sea level, and they could be very significant. I mean, a metre across this century is an unreasonable estimate. Some people estimate it could be quite a lot higher than that. But what we will be seeing is a lot more um, across the following century or two, because we are locking in, we are setting in train now, ongoing melting in Greenland and parts of Antarctic. Once we've started that, it's hard to imagine how you could possibly reverse it. And there are some very worrying signs that we're starting to see this happening a little bit earlier than we had expected. And this means then once we've started that, once we trigger that, then we will be seeing changes to the, to the, to the land masses, significant changes to the land masses across the globe. And you think that most cities, most people live um, around the coastal zones. You start to see a whole suite of really you know, major implications for these parts of the world. My name is Damaris Albuquerque. I come from Nicaragua, country in Central America, and I'm currently directing CEPAD, which is the, stands for the Council of Protestant Churches in Nicaragua. Uh, Nicaragua is an agricultural country, uh, and also our farmers, they do basic agriculture, not uh, technolo technological. So they rely on the climate for growing the crops. If it's dry, if it's too rainy, then it affects them. And uh, our rainy season usually runs from May to November. And that has been how they have farmed in the, in the past. But recent years, that has changed. And so we don't know when the rainy season will start or when will it end. And, and it is more, has been more dry in the recent years and also bring some flood, flooding at the end because we are close to the Caribbean. We get all the hurricanes uh, in the month of October and those uh, hurricanes come now stronger, you know, we, more uh, harder rains and that of course uh, affects uh, the way they grow things and we are always suffering from droughts or floods we, we work with uh, communities, villages, and uh, one of the, the one of the program is directed to farmers, to agriculture, how they can um, farm uh, in these conditions, and uh, we teach them techniques on how to make better use of their ground, how to conserve the water, soil conservation, how to use resistant seeds. Uh, to the climate, uh, native seeds, and how to grow other crops that are more resistant and also there are more short-term crops so they can have food all year round. And also it's affecting water because now the rivers are drying out and are contaminated as well. And for example, in Teustepe, which is an area which is in the, uh, the dry corridor, we call it a dry corridor, and uh, they have a river 
that goes dry during the dry season and then gets its water during the flooding season. But the water is diverted for the, uh, by the rice growers. So they have the rice growers have enough water for their rice crops, but then the people uh, are left without water. Uh, all of us should have equal rights to the to the natural resources, to the creation. And so the, then the, those who have more take advantage of the resources and le leave the others without them. We are hopeful for the present, but in the long run, we also are affected by those phenomenon, El Niño y La Niña. I don't know if you're aware of them. El Niño brings dry season. No rain, and La Nina is all the all the contrary. A lot of rain, and uh, so we are afraid that, that, that there will be no water, enough water. We work with farmers, uh, helping them to to make what we call micro dams. There is a hole in the ground. You put plastic to capture water. But if the pattern continues as it is now, there will be no water to capture. Also, we work with them with uh, water filters because the water that is available is contaminated. I think it will not be too sustainable in the long future if we don't make any changes to protect our, uh, our environment. My name is Rachel and I work for Hope for the Future. So I had some vegetarian friends at church at university and I was very confused as to why on earth they were vegetarian and why they kept saying that that was part of their faith I really didn't understand um, and so it was sort of through my friendship through their, them that I kind of asked questions and was kind of wondering what was happening with that and then um, a group of students um, that I knew were also involved in the divestment movement also at um, university I was like, oh, interesting, I will start getting a little bit involved in that. Um, I studied philosophy, and part of my political philosophy paper was a little section on climate change, which I found so utterly distressing. <laughs> and I mean that in a sense of like the philosophical arguments for why it doesn't matter that climate change gets worse, because the identity of future persons isn't fixed. And I was alarmed that you could just think that that was a reason not to act. Um, and sort of, I guess, once you start having something on your radar, you start noticing it in the other parts of your life. And so I started on a very slippery, slippery slope um, into the environmental movement, which became more and more entrenched. And after I graduated and moved to London, that was just at the time that XR was starting. And so I was, at that point, compelled enough that I became involved in that. And then through that, lots of other activism movements. And now I work in the sector. Yeah, so I started with sort of the more personal things, and that was at university. So I um, was vegan for Lent in my second year of university. And um, most, mostly it was just like, well, I want to be able to say that I've tried it. And at the end, during Holy Week, I was like, I will reflect on this. And then that was when I started making the links between faith and the environmental movement, and I was very convicted by it. And so that was the beginning. And then the following year, I kind of made that decision that I wouldn't fly on a plane ever again. Um, which was a big choice, but one that I felt I needed to make and sat right with me, um, and that still kind of held through. Deciding not to fly, for example, was a huge thing for me because 
it effectively meant shutting down quite a lot of the world. So previously, if someone was talking about Australia or um, Indonesia or their trips to those places, there was a sense that that could be me at some point, but um, now there very much isn't. But interestingly, I was like, actually, the vast majority of people on the planet don't ever get to make that choice. And I had the privilege to be able to make that choice. I think there's something really um, interesting about... <laughs> kind of a biblical parallel between um, you find your life when you lose it and actually when you um, make choices that are costly you also gain in a richness of something else that I don't really know how to put into words but that has definitely been true in my own life and the things that I've decided in this area is that I've it now no longer feels like a sacrifice at all it just feels like I found new sources of life in being able to make those decisions. We're in the sixth mass extinction event, that's clear from the science, it's named in the science, and scientists use words like biological annihilation on their papers, you know, it's, it's, there have been five other extinction events, people know about the dinosaurs, and we're looking at, I think, around a million species potentially going extinct, and if they don't get extinct, they're going to be near obliterated, you know, a one in five mammals in this country may be gone within a decade in the UK. UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world and that's one of the things that breaks my heart and also lifts my heart. You know, I was on an organic farm recently, a small one, and there were swarms of insects like they used to be in my childhood. And when I go to places where there are packs of sparrows, it all seems to be the sparrows that get me. I always think they're like little working class birds, aren't they? Like in packs and a bit ordinary looking and gorgeous so the yeah it's important that we are real and I think what we stumbled across Roger's original paper that he put together was called tell the truth and ask people to act accordingly and it was like let's stop doing this thing that the green movement's doing which is pussyfooting around reality let's say it as it is uh, let's tell the science as it is and including the precautionary principle so I don't know if you know, but the 2050 target the government seems to have adopted, which is an, a, a nightmare, it has only a 50% chance of succeeding. So they've given themselves a target, and we know they miss targets, and with only a 50% chance of succeeding, of keeping the temperatures in, in any kind of safe domain. But this is not... I mean, if you don't get the waiting list right on the NHS, people will suffer and some people will die, and that's appalling. And what we're talking about here is the potential extinction of, of, of the human race and a mass extinction of plant and animal species. You have to use strong words when you're, when you're dealing with things like that. And the other word, rebellion, you know, it's a very British thing in some ways, rebellion. It's, it's not something we do easily, but we do have a history of rising up. And as we say, we're not in protest, we're in a space where the social contract is broken. You know, it's whether wherever you are on the political spectrum, you might be more centrist or a bit more on the right. There are political commentators like Hobbes or Locke who talk about the right to rebel and the actually the duty to rebel. So the Declaration of Rebellion, if people read that online, I think it's a beautiful piece of prose. It was written by Simon Bramwell, who's one of the uh, first people who are part of Extinction Rebellion and Rising Up and um, it has that 
depth of Britishness in it, I think, of the idea of duty and things being sacred and how we love this land, you know. The, the idea that you love your land and you love your country seems to have been again adopted by the right, whereas I think, you know, I love, I absolutely love this country. It's gorgeous and I love the people, I love our humour, I love how we play with irony. I, I love that cringing feeling of embarrassment we have around each other that's just ridiculous and none of us seem to be able to get over, you know. I mean, we're, we're, we're wonderful and we f*** the world over, it's down to us to really undo what we've done and to melt our hearts. So I was talking about tell the truth and ask people to act accordingly and the green movement needing to change how it does things and we stumbled across this. Well, it was Roger's idea and it was a good idea, but it had a piece missing. When you look at Jane Morton's work, who's a psychologist, she talks about emergency mode messaging and how the green movement needs to move into that. So it was very much backing up our, this idea uh, that you, you tell people the truth and in an emergency, a new bit of people emerge. You know, an opportunity is there within an emergency. It's not all bad. And people are willing to act according to their values, which is to, to, to everything else gets set aside in an emergency, doesn't it? And you do what's necessary. And the other piece that needs to be in there is the idea of a vision that it's possible to do. It's possibly going to work. So if your house is on fire, you are going to break in because it's possible you're going to save your children in, in the bedroom or whatever. You're not going to worry about, you're not going to sit there and calculate the percentage likelihood. Are you just going to go and do it because that's the right thing to do? And uh, maybe you'll succeed. And, and of course, you're going to try. And I think for me, there is a need now to hold this vision for each other that we have woken up to what we've done because it's a mess. And how, you know, as Greta said it, how dare we? But also we were broken and traumatised. That's why we did it. We didn't realise. Now we're waking up to it and falling back in love with each other in life. And it's time to clean up after ourselves and I think that's a, such an honourable way to spend our lives I've been trying to start mass civil disobedience for a while and through praying I met Roger Hallam and we started organising together and pulling meetings together and groups and other people joined us and a momentum developed and we tried out various tactics and so it was this group called Rising Up that we named it in the end and we would gather every few months at people's houses so you're sitting in my sitting room and this is where we made the decision to do Extinction Rebellion and then we gathered in a cafe in Bristol a few weeks later to start planning it. So we'd have like, um, I was just thinking about this room just behind there, Ian Bray, who's a Quaker, that's where he would sleep. Somebody down the corridor there, we thought like 20 to 30 people crashed out in this little three-bed house. Um, and it, it feels incredible, like I actually often don't believe it's actually happening, that we're now in 63 countries, there's... We have a, a reach on social media of a million people and uh, it's growing all the time. There's there's over 200 groups in the UK and it, it's it's heading so far so good, you know, in the right direction in terms of numbers. It needs to have about 2 million people in the UK that are actively supporting a rebellion. I'm a freelance academic. I 
have an honorary position at Glasgow University. Um, I am an activist. Many, my work is best known for land reform and various environmental campaigns, uh, also urban poverty and matters to do with human ecology as well as natural ecology. Alistair McIntosh calling in from Glasgow during lockdown. Issues of climate change and how we appraise the science of climate change have been very much on my mind. And uh, I've used the lockdown usefully to complete that work. I'm noticing a much greater propensity to anger, to flashpoint type stuff. And I think it's a combination of the actual effects of being in lockdown and, you know, folk starting to go a bit, get, get a bit rattled by it. And the whole constellation of circumstances of our time, of which the virus obviously is one element, but by no means the only element, and in the longer term, a relatively small element compared with climate change. Pandemics go right back in our history. You know, the earliest annals, whether from China or the annals of the Celtic monks and so on, talk of repeated great plagues coming upon the world. Archaeologists will tell you that when you find a deserted medieval village or signs thereof, usually it's been a plague that has been behind the cause of it being deserted. Trends in human behaviour very much increase the likelihood of pandemics. The World Health Organization since 1990s has had on its pandemic section of its website a warning that pandemics are likely to happen in the future. It's not a question of if, but when, and that when they do come, they could kill millions. The Spanish flu of 1918-1919 killed between 20 and 40 million. The coronavirus as of yesterday had killed 400,000 people worldwide. And this is in a world where we have far more advanced medical support facilities than we had back then at the time of the ending of the First World War. So yes, pandemics are likely to keep on coming, to keep on hitting us. And in the case of the coronavirus, I think we can see very clearly how modern living and particularly fossil fuel driven living are key drivers in what is happening. Because fossil fuels have enabled us to live with very intense population density. So when you've got a lot of people close together, you've got a considerable pool for infections to spread, combined with the fact that that mandates things like factory farming and the intensive factory farming of animals could well be a factor in this coronavirus. And then the third factor is that fossil fuels enable rapid transportation around the world. So, you know, it's thought that the reason there was so much of it in northern Italy was that they had close trading links with Wuhan province. So the virus was maybe brought back there and got a foothold early on. That's only made possible because we can jump on a plane and be across the world tomorrow, carrying the virus with us in ways that in the past would be a very much slower process. And what the IPCC report 
on climate change in the land says, the one that came out last year, is that it says that it's a combination of changing land use, partly driven by climate change, that can cause human beings to encroach into wildlife areas. Basically, you know, if you're a bit short on food, then you go poaching for wild animals or what have you. And when you bring those back into the human food chain, there is a higher risk of epidemics and possibly pandemics breaking out. So a threat multiplier is something which you can't directly lay a finger on, but it is likely to increase other forms of threat, whether threats of agricultural failure, threats of conflict, or threats of pandemics breaking out. I think that the you know, the pause, as I heard a friend of mine call it the other day, the way in which we've all had to go on slow, uh, we've been laid off our work and all the rest of it. The pause has led to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. At the peak of it in China, I saw one statistic that said that the CO2 emissions had reduced by 25%. But, you know, still churning out 75%. Most of the factories kept going. Most of the agriculture kept going and so on. Um, aviation, although we, we focus on it a lot, is responsible for only something like 2% of emissions. So simply stopping the planes in itself has not led to a dramatic drop in CO2 emissions. So the CO2 is still building up. And the concern that I have that, you know, what are we seeing? But as soon as it starts biting, you get President Trump in America saying that he's going to relax environmental regulations on corporations to make it easier for them to compete again. You have the Chinese advertising cars to try and get the car economy going. And here in Britain, Boris Johnson doing the same thing with reopening not just garden centers first, but also car sales rooms first. So my concern is that we've seen a little bit of what can be done, but there is huge counterpoint pressure to bring back consumerism as usual with all the emissions that that will entail. The theologian Hannah Malcolm calling in from lockdown. I guess it's three months now for us. My husband and I have been in lockdown in uh, Mossside in Manchester where we live um, and my husband um, is more vulnerable so um, we have to um, abide by stricter social distancing rules um, and I think one of the um, one of the real challenges that it's brought home for me as someone who um, have to manage my own um, chronic mental health condition um, and who also relies quite heavily on um, being outside being amongst other creatures um, in order to manage my well-being um, has been um, a reminder of just how uneven um, access to other creatures access to the living world is um, for people in our country losses of green space, losses of other creatures. Um, the loss of the living world has been much more keenly felt in lower-income neighbourhoods and communities. Um, and something like how much um, local park, how much green space per person in a neighbourhood is a really telling um, 
measure of the uneven ways that we treat each other. Historically, we've made this theological distinction between um, natural evil and moral evil, which has been our way of dealing with um, the fact that um, some kinds of bad things that happen in the world, we can say, well, that was the direct um, result of human sinfulness and other bad things that happen um, seem to be part of, you know, being in an in systems of violence more generally. So a natural evil might be something like an earthquake that kills people. Moral evil is a person that goes out and kills people. Um, one of the consequences of climate breakdown has been that the lines between moral and natural evil have become really blurred. Um, so we know that this virus is a consequence of our simple relationships to other creatures. Um, lots of people have made the connection that environmental destruction makes viruses jumping from animals more likely. Um, and that also, <clears throat> as climate breakdown continues, we're going to see more and more of these kinds of events. So um, things like SARS, bird flu, um, and coronavirus, those kinds of um, epidemics and pandemics are going to become more and more frequent. Um, and wrapped up in that, um, that kind of blurring of those lines um, between what we've maybe traditionally considered human spaces and non-human spaces is that, you know, that's the result, that blurring partly of um, our prioritization of our current economic models over everything else. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that the two are kind of inextricably linked. I think this is a moment of um, you know, it's a it's a revelatory moment where we um, have a glimpse of our of our both our capacity and our willingness um, for responding to um, global destructive events. One of the things people have said um, about coronavirus, um, you know, has been that. It, it's demonstrated that we are capable of, of quite rapid and far-reaching change. Um, our emissions um, globally um, have dropped by 17% since lockdown began. Um, and that, I mean, that's really not very much, given that we need to re reach a kind of net zero state. But it's also worth bearing in mind that really nothing actually has changed. Um, we haven't really changed our, our habits. Um, we haven't really changed the way we consume things. We haven't we haven't really changed our energy systems, um, and our economic system um, has changed slightly, but but not really. I suppose the thing that I found quite difficult to hear um, in people's comparisons between something like this um, pandemic and our wider um, climate and ecological collapse has been, um, you know people saying things like, oh, nature's healing itself, um, or uh, humans with the virus, after all, because of stories like um, cleaner air, um, you know, animals returning to cities, that kind of thing. <clears throat> or, you know, nature is, um, nature sent us to our rooms to think about what we've done. Um, and one of the ways that we can talk maybe with more clarity about the relationship between um, something like a pandemic of this scale and learning how to change our behavior um, is that we can make distinctions between changes in activity and um, the human beings involved in them. So um, 
people have said things like, oh, well, there's fewer people on the road and so the air is cleaner. Um, well, that's not true. What it is is there's fewer cars on the road that have made the air cleaner. Um, and that kind of distinction might seem really small, but it challenges that, that underlying um, current in our thought that human life should be seen as at best separate from and at worst the enemy of other creatures. That shift in, in the way we imagine our relationship to the world around us, I think will create the space for us to do the creative and transformative work we need to do. We can't imagine that it's a binary of choosing between human flourishing and the flourishing of the living world. You bring me a doll and tell me to point to where it hurts. I tell you, I need an atlas. Bring me a globe. I place my fingertip on the northernmost point and let it spin before me and watch grand mountains and dying oceans and pillaged forests and lifetimes pass before my eyes and wonder how I would rearrange it if the earth was just a small sphere in my hand. I'd fill in the disappearing coral reef with the colors the world is so ready to forget. I'd dip both hands into the oceans of time and carry back home the extinct species to the seas. I'd take the water from the melting ice caps in buckets to the barren deserts, move the unsung clouds from our grey skies to drought-stricken lands and fill the hands of farmers extended in prayer with the rain we so readily complain about. I'd move the bulldozers out of the rainforests so that the trees will not be disturbed in their prostration to their Lord and take them instead to the separation wall in the West Bank in Palestine. I'd bring watercolours the calmest blue, the brightest yellow, to paint over the black blanket of pollution shrouding continents in eternal darkness, hanging over factories where little hands stitch their childhood into the hem of our skirts, watching their lives pass by in the reflection in the small, intricate mirror work on our dresses. When I have finished, I'll run my finger along the borders, erase the sketch marks of the colonizers until the globe is no longer a map, until the word map is erased from history and the earth returns to just being God's canvas, ready to be adorned by tomorrow's hands. Williams, the Master of Magdalen College in Cambridge. I first woke up to some of the environmental crisis in my twenties. I was that generation that, uh, I suppose, 
picked up from Rachel Carson and then from Schumacher. Those early voices, the first uh, swallows of the summer, if you like, who were talking about the devastation that we were creating. And it clicked for me very, very strongly with some of the, the work I was doing as a theologian at the time. I was working on Eastern Christianity, which has a very powerful sense of how the natural world carries the energy of the divine and how that that teaches us a kind of um, veneration for the material environment we're in. It's easy enough to construct a, a story about Western civilization where at some point everything goes completely wrong. It's never as simple as that. But there is a watershed moment somewhere in the 16th, 17th century where you can actually see somehow the gulf between mind or spirit and body has opened that bit wider. And the sheer resourcefulness of the human mind in exploring the material world draws people into this myth of the active mind and the passive world. Here am I, the maker, the questioner, the inventor. Famously in the image that Francis Bacon uses right at the start of the scientific revolution, I put nature on the rack, I torture nature to make her give up her secrets. It's a very powerful image and a very telling one, not least in its gendered nature. I put the female body of nature there where I can probe and intrude and impose. And that male, dominating, head not heart, mind not body, that's a, a strong myth in Western society. And it dies hard you'll still have people, a very distinguished American philosopher, saying, at the end of the day, there is just stuff. And what he means by there is just stuff is actually, there is just stuff, plus people like me who write books of philosophy about it. And what we lose in that is the sense of involvement in, interdependence with the world wherein we treat that world out there as something we're not part of. And there is that moment, as I say, in the 16th, 17th century, where the gulf really starts opening up. If you look at the history of science in the 17th century, there's a sort of battle going on under the surface between people who still hold to a more mythological, mystical, participatory, even magical view, whether it's in the poetry of Thomas Traherne, or actually in some of the, the philosophers who start the Royal Society. They're not all um, Francis Bacon types, who are very conscious of the immense complexity of factors and energies flowing together in the world, and are still not quite sure whether they're scientists or magicians. And then you have the people like Francis Bacon for whom, no, it's simple, it's, it's out there, it's dead, just carve it up and label it. The carving up and labeling tends to win over a couple of centuries that follow, and then very, very slowly, it's as if we're steering back towards a deeper sense of interaction and involvement. And so many powerful scientific minds of the last few decades have moved in that direction. People who say, well, let's face it, the world seems to be intelligent in a way we We've never, 
really reckoned with. The world exchanges information in a creative way. That's what the material world is. It's bigger than we thought. I think Wendell Berry said something like, there are no unsacred places, there are just sacred places and desecrated places. And we look at what we're doing to the earth and how we're trashing her and trashing ourselves. It's a deep separation from our own inherent sense of purpose and love and our connection to our ancestors and the next generations to come after us. I don't think that change comes driven by the intellect. The intellect has its place in terms of planning things and understanding you know, tactics and things like that. So it's definitely got its role, but ultimately it has to be rooted in the heart. And I think that if you, a word like sacred is something that can speak to people to say that this is something of deep meaning that we're doing together. And I, I, I think it's important that things are rooted very deeply in our bodies. And that's how I feel that word. The Reverend John Swales. So I've been brought up sort of res respecting uh, creation. You know, I've filled in on online petitions, noticed a bit of Greenpeace stuff and whatever, but really just going about my life, just a general level of awareness. Then about eight months ago, a um, couple of things happened. One, my daughter went on one of the youth strikes, so I just got interested in the, the climate stuff. But at the same time, I was preparing a series of talks on the Book of Revelations, a series of sermons. Noticed that in that central part of the Book of Revelation, it talks about uh, famines, it talks about wars. Um, and I just started noticing parallels between what Revelation was talking about and the climate discussion. So. During that time of sermon prepping, I got into uh, climate science, reading reports, reading a number of books, listening to podcasts, and I started to see that my general awareness of greenhouse gases uh, and that we may have a problem at some point was, was misguided. It wasn't enough that this is an emergency situation that very likely... Uh, within my lifetime, almost definitely, well, definitely within the lifetime of my kids. We are, unless something drastically changes, we're going to see a world of mass starvation, global migration and societal collapse. And quite frankly, that terrified me, it disturbed me. Um, my peers and colleagues weren't talking about this. And so, well, I must be wrong, so let's do more research. Let's listen to more stuff. Let's see what's out there. Let's get a mainstream view. And actually, the more I researched into it, the more I, I realized, yes, there's variety. There's, a, there's different opinions in the scientific community, but the consensus is unless we change things drastically, the future looks tragic. IPCC report, 
they say we've got another 10 years really to sort of really get a grip of decarbonising radically or that the future is one which will be uh, really incompatible with, um, with human existence. But the UN Secretary General last year, he said we've got two years to do something drastic. Yes, there's differing opinions there, but both of them are, are saying this is an emergency situation. So I preached my series on the book of uh, Revelation um, and I noticed the parallels that in there's beastly forces at work today, the unholy trinity of unrestrained capitalism, of consumerism and individualism. I'm complicit with their power and force and now my eyes are open. And as I look at the climate science, as we try and predict the future, um, well, all hell in one sense is breaking out. You know, uh, climate change is a threat multiplier. We will see more wars. We will see more famines. We will see more disease. We'll see more uh, refugees. All hell is beginning to break out. But what we see now in, a, in the Western world in a, uh, in a shadowy way, we will quite soon see in technical. Um, and I think what we'll see in the coming uh, coming years is people waking up and grieving for a future which will no longer be. Actually, after um, preaching this series on Revelation, I fell ill uh, with a chest infection. And for about eight weeks, I was really laid up in bed, antibiotics not wor working, staying awake at night, um, crying, I put my kids to bed and I'd be crying for a future which will no longer be in a place of grief and lament. Um, at that time, st struggling to pray, but that changed and developed into a really prophetic calling of speaking truth to power so I feel that as an uncomfortable calling, uncomfortable calling to uh, speak out on these issues with as much clarity as, as, as I can. I would probably say that grief is still there. So an example would be this morning, I woke up and about half an hour of getting up, you know, having a coffee, suddenly it, it, it sort of kicks in. You know, I'm reminded of that normal life nowadays takes place in the context of this catastrophe which is unfolding. But grief can be a process. And for myself, I've been able to move from grief, which is almost like denial, then paralysis, to then being able to move forward with some level of, uh, of hope. If, or to go with Brueggemann, I was in a place of orientation. My, my world makes sense. Uh, I understand the climate science, I'm grieving. I'm in a place of disorientation. I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what the world is anymore. My worldview is, 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 is collapsing and changing around me. But now I'm in a place of reorientation. So I'm not back at the beginning. I have grieved and I grieve and there's, there is some despair in that. But actually I've moved into another place where I reorientate my, uh, my worldview, which means that 
um, I can actually get out of bed and do things. And part of that would be leaning into lament, but then also leaning into the activism. My hope is that I'm more present in the present. I thought I could dictate and control the future. You know, just in the sense of that's how I imagine things. I can't. In the present, I can, I can really be there. So I'm trying to notice more. I'm trying to appreciate the earth better. I'm trying to appreciate things like laughter, uh, joy, just family dynamics. And that life is a life is a gift. I think that's breaking into the present. I can have a glimpse and a foretaste of, of what I, I still hope deep down will one day be of the restoration of all things and all tears wiped away. Grief is different from despair. Despair says nothing will change inside or outside. Grief says things have changed and things will change. If they're to change for the better rather than the worse, I've got to understand the grief and go into it and somehow make sense of it. So, yes, I grieve for the future in the sense that I think my children and grandchildren will live in a smaller world than I live in. And that's on the very best, the most benign forecast. The not-so-benign forecast is there'll hardly be a world at all. But at the very best, you know, we'll be living in a world where resources are shrinking, where biodiversity is all the time being eroded, and therefore where anxiety, conflict and rivalry are ratcheting up all the time. I think it's appropriate to grieve that that's how change may work, that's where change will take us. But looking at it with intelligence, with imagination, looking at some of the roots of that in ourselves, that's what turns us away from despair. That's what says change doesn't have to work one way. And if I'm prepared to look in, as well as look around, maybe there are other sorts of change. Recently I came across a wonderful phrase which said that we're homesick for the rest of creation. And that, that puts it very well, that there is a kind of desolation which I suspect a lot of people are feeling at the not-quite-conscious level, desolation that our company in this world is shrinking, the company of sentient beings, the company of others who share this, this space. And people often now feel this impulse to go and expose themselves to a wilder environment. People talk about rewilding their environment because they're aware that the, the, the sort of solitary humans-only territory we've created is really, really stifling us. When we think of the bad old days in South Africa and um, all those signs saying whites only, occasionally I think there's just a little bit of an analogy with the world in which we're putting up notices saying humans only, as if we really did not want to share our space with the rest of organic life. Now, the effect of that is, of course, to cut into our own flesh, almost literally, to cut into our own 
readiness to be fed and to be nurtured by the environment we're in, as if we really don't want to be receiving what makes us grow and flourish. So yes, there's there's loss, there's bereavement there, and I think that image of homesickness is a very powerful one. That seems to be what people are experiencing. In a strange sort of way, I think the real impact on my faith has been to make me more and more aware of the way in which life and intelligence and interaction permeate everything. It's as if I've been weaned more and more away from the idea that there's a lot of passive stuff out there, there's an active mind in here inside me, to see that mind consciousness moves in everything, that if the world really is in the hand of God and part of the act of God, then God moves in everything. And the big mistake we make is to think that the world is, is just a lump of dead stuff. So in a strange way, I'd say the crisis has woken me up to, to a deeper sense of the vitality of things, the interconnectedness of things. We've discovered in thinking about the environmental crisis more and more vividly how much we depend on each other, how what seems to be a relatively small shift in the biosphere actually upsets all kinds of aspects of the ecology overall. We've discovered that a little adjustment in a local ecology can have consequences across the globe. Um, we look at the, the problems that species of bees have and the effect that has on actual crop production and fertility, how the, the reduction in biodiversity among bee populations is not just something about bees, not just a problem about bees, it's a problem about the entire um, biosphere in which the bee operates. It's just one example. And when, when we see that interconnection, we see, I think, more and more vividly how the presence and agency of the creator is just there working, knitting itself together in, in every aspect of where we are and what we are. Jesus, it seems to me in the Gospels, is saying two things simultaneously. He's saying, there is a great crisis coming. And for him, it was mostly the, the terrible crisis and tragedy that overtook the Jewish people in the first century. There's a great crisis coming. It's a time of testing. It's a time when everything will be turned inside out. Don't kid yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Things are serious. And the world is running down in some sense. He also says at the same time, stand firm. Be confident that you are loved and you are worthwhile. When you have that confidence that you are reconciled, you are loved, you have the confidence to share that reconciliation and love with others. Start now. Don't leave it till tomorrow. Accept the, the offer of love and reconciliation. Make that offer yourself today. And whether or not the crisis comes or what happens the day after tomorrow, you will be alive now. I think that's a rather, you know, rather pointed um, address to us as we are today. Yes, things are dire, and there's no guarantee that we will resolve the challenges of climate change. It is possible, 
that we've passed the tipping point. But don't be passive. There is a better way of being now. And if you start living like that now, if you change now, well, who knows what becomes possible? In other words, the end of the world is nigh, don't panic, which is a very strange message. <laughs> the end of the world is nigh, you can still live, you can still change. It's still worth being human. I was just thinking about um, the IPCC report and three to four degrees this century and then 1.5 degrees and I think for the first time I worked out how old I would be and it's like 35 probably when we hit 1.5 degrees and I'd never quite let my thought process get to the realization that in all likelihood I will see a world of 1.5 degrees and then two degrees and then three. How on earth do I grieve for that? I don't really know. Um, so yes, of course, there are moments that it comes home and you're like, wow, this is so much bigger than I am. And I don't actually know how to comprehend that just in my mind. I really don't. And at the same time, I have a real eschatological hope of life comes after death and that love wins and that light is stronger than the darkness. And so I hold on to like a very real sense that when you kind of plant something plant a seed in the ground and you leave it in darkness and you're like how on earth would that grow and yet it does that that also applies to so many situations around us and I fundamentally do not believe that there is anything that is irredeemable and that is what I hold to um <laughs> so many people give me hope and inspire me so many people and even it's really little things. It's the people from the local environmental group sending me a postcard. It's watching um, people above the age of 70 underneath a truck in Marble Arch and the April Rebellion chained onto it. And it's people who read me a beautiful bit of poetry. I'm like, wow, what an amazing gift of beauty that is. And seeing people who also care about this um, and even people who don't care about it everyone models something of life and of goodness and of truth and of beauty and all of those things give me hope and they all inspire me in different ways Travelling times are ahead Never could be what they said Won't be the same anyways Just as it was our land And it, it breaks my heart Cause there's still love here And it breaks apart the life we share And it speaks of love That you don't want me to go But I said it before I want to live happily but that doesn't seem quite right anymore I 
that's what this is for I want to live for my cause Ready to lay down my nights and my days for this war And it breaks my heart that there's still love here And it breaks apart the life we share And it speaks of love that you don't want me to go But I said it before, I want to live happily But that doesn't seem quite right anymore What is living? The broad hall found between narrow walls. What is acknowledging? Finding the one root under the branches tangle. What is believing? Watching at home till the time arrives for welcome. What is forgiving? Pushing your way through thorns to stand alongside your old enemy. What is singing? The ancient gifted breath drawn in creating. What is labour but making songs from the wood and the wheat? What is it to govern kingdoms? A skill still crawling on all fours. And arming kingdoms? A knife placed in a baby's fist. What is it to be a people? A gift lodged in the heart's deep folds. What is love of country? Keeping house among a cloud of witnesses. What is the world to the wealthy and strong, a wheel that turns and turns? What is the world to Earth's little ones, a cradle rocking and rocking? For me personally, there was no revelation in relation to climate change. At no moment did I suddenly think, I wake up one day and think, you know, this, this is an issue I've got to spend 
the rest of my life working on. And I should hasten to add that I really, you know, I really, in some respects, wish I'd never left my my earlier careers. And I was, I was used to work in the Merchant Navy. I spent my earlier life um, training as an engineer to work on ships, traveling around the world carrying cargo. Um, it started to started to be interested in issues of climate change and then I so I went to, back to university to study issues of climate change and with various small breaks in between I've be, basically been working on it since the 1990s but at no point did I think um, did I wake up to think this is the most important issue it was a gradual evolution and that evolution came across I think because it became increasingly evident that we were choosing to fail so who's the we I mean the high emitting people in our world that are have the privilege of being able to understand these issues. So I think there's sometimes deliberate ignorance, sometimes or willful ignorance, if you like, and others that then will deliberately massage our own assumptions and storylines to delude both ourselves and other people about, about our responsibility, the high emitter's responsibility, um, and about the fact is that we have the agency to act, but choose not to. Our emissions in 2018 were about 67% higher of carbon dioxide than they were in 1990. And even a country like the UK has made almost no shift in its emissions since 1990. And other countries, progressive countries like Sweden, France and Denmark, have seen no reduction in emissions since 1990. 50% of global emissions come from 10% of the world's population. 70% of the emissions come from just 20% of the population. And in the highly unequal countries like the UK, or in the US for instance, then those, those breakdowns are not that dissimilar. So it is not normal people driving occasionally in an older car, living in a terraced house or living in rented accommodation. These are not the people who are really the main causes of climate change in a country like the UK. They are the professors, the barristers, the, you know, the well-paid teachers. The, you know, there's a more senior people on the, on the moderate to high and the very high incomes in the UK and broadly the higher income, the higher the emissions by and large. That These are the people responsible for the lion's share of emissions even in the UK. And yet we still describe futures whereby we almost look, look at everyone as if they're all the same. And at the moment, we are still discussing, and so are most academics, about bolting climate change onto business as usual. This is a fundamental change to business as usual because we have chosen to fail on reducing our emissions for 30 years. What we have to address at the moment, of course, is not just one clearly defined, clearly focused enemy. It's a system. It's a complicated spider's web of practices and assumptions um, and vested interests extending from right from the top end of the fossil fuel industry through to everything that the fossil fuel industry fuels, um, investment policies that go with that, right through to Food miles in the supermarket. Yeah, you, you, where do you start with all that? That's that's one of the difficulties, and that's why, whatever options the individual might make about adjusting, as I've said, making those small changes that can be made, there are things that only coordinated action from higher up can really make a difference to. So pressure on governments, pressure on governments to cooperate, becomes enormously important. So yes, speaking to power is a key element. Well, they have the biggest responsibility because also the Bible says that he who has more response has more has more responsibility. And they have been the ones who have taken have abused our our resources and the people and everything to their advantage. So now it's their turn to stop doing that and start trying uh, changing that. 
Because if they don't change, every little effort that we do here is important, but it, it won't be the same. So it's their responsibility to, to stop looking at their pockets and start looking at the people. Power is what it is, partly because it practices being deaf. So sometimes the volume has to be turned up. In the last year or so, the emergence of Extinction Rebellion, the development of the school strikes and so on, this seems to be a matter of turning up the volume. Nonviolent civil disobedience, what you might call the theatre of nonviolent protest. Just as a witness to the depth of conviction, the depth of concern, that has already clearly had an impact. sometimes ask about the the, not the legitimacy, the, the morality, if you like, of defying the law or resisting the law or breaking the law. And what's important then is to ask, well, what, what is the law for? Law is to conserve the stability and security of a society. We have a legal system, we have police, we have courts, so that people will feel that they have somewhere to go if they're damaged, hurt, robbed, offended, etc. What if you live in a world where the very possibility of stability and security is being undermined by a lot of the practices we take for granted in our economy? Then you have in a way to drive back towards the first principles of law and say, yes, okay, I'm defying or transgressing this particular regulation for the sake of law itself, that is, for the sake of a society which has security, stability, justice, etc. Um, I accept the consequences. If I break the law, I go to jail. Fine. But I'm, if you like, calling the law to account in terms of its own first principles. In Leeds, set up um, uh, with, a, with a few like-minded people, set up Christian cl Climate Action Group in Leeds, and then a few of us decide to go down to uh, the October Rebellion. And it has to be one of the most strange, beautiful, sad, uh, holy experiences which I have had at one point, I was with a, uh, we had a bit of a choir formed. There was protesters, grandparents locked on to each other and locked onto the ground, refusing to move because the um, and they're going to be arrested. But the police are waiting for the uh, bolt cutters and whatever to to arrive. So this 
you know, I found myself walking the streets of London, um, weeping, crying, like leading morning prayer by a hearse where people have locked themselves on to the hearse and you're there praying for people and jo joining with the protesters and finding my liturgy changing with the context. This, this needs to change the language that we use. I found myself doing reaffirming people's baptisms in Trafalgar Square, uh, becoming more aware than ever that the buildings and the architecture around are representative of, of, of power and industry and uh, uh, the powerful. And instead of saying to people, do you turn from sin? Would I change that, make it more specific to the context. Do you, do you turn from unrestrained capitalism, consumerism and individualism? And then the people who had reaffirmed the baptism would head off into the city of London to be arrested. Very strange uh, situation to find myself, uh, find myself in. What's interesting with civil disobedience, I often think people like it in the past and admire it in the past and go, oh, the wonderful suffragettes or Martin Luther King or Gandhi, you know. Uh, and then when you do it today, it's problematic and annoying. <laughs> and actually, we have a history of civil disobedience in this country that, you know, people often again point to the suffragettes. But since then, you know, there's been a, they were mass trespassers and that's why we have the right to roam and... Uh, you know, people like the Ramblers Association came out of mass trespass. We had people pulling up GM crops and get involved in civil disobedience, including Prince Charles. So we have a, a good tradition of it, and it's about doing what's right. Duty is to honour sacred law and the, the law of love, and civil disobedience is a manifestation of that. And I also see it as very initiatory because we're stuck in a system that wants us to stay quiet and wants us to keep our heads down and keep consuming. It's very narcissistic. It's very self-indulgent. And there's something about saying, I do not stand by this system. And when you commit an act of civil disobedience, it's a breaking of your relationship with something. It's a Rubicon to cross. And when people do it, they have an inner transformation very often. It has an element of trickster in it as well. It has an element of mischief in it, potentially, but certainly an element of, of sacred service. So I was really amazed getting into the environmental movement, holding a space which is sort of inherently confrontational because you're saying, I don't like the status quo and I want to be counted as being anti that. And as someone who I really dislike conflict, I cannot tell you how much I dislike it. I find that an incredibly difficult space to hold, but also a really powerful one. And I think there's something about stepping outside of the ordinary into something that feels extraordinary that opens your eyes to other dimensions of the extraordinary as well. And so when I'm standing in a place that I can sometimes feel a little bit nervous about, I'm also most open to God. And I find it a, an amazing place to pray and also an amazing place to have fellowship with other people because my experience of the environmental movement is a lot of people are wrestling with and acknowledging their own brokenness and that of um, that they see in the world and um, the people around them. And they're working out, how do I go forward with this? Oh, I think 
kind of love, hope, sacrifice, all of these different ideas, they're all very much open questions that people have. And there's a lot of diverging opinions about where they're moving towards as well. But it's a space that's very open to, I guess, the cracks and brokenness and vulnerability. And it's a really amazing place for connection with other people and to experience church in a different sense of that word. In my job here in Leeds, I work closely with the police. I'm a friend of the police, uh, receive grants from the police for the work I do. In the context of the October rebellion, I was struck by the both the humanness of the police, but also struck by that how they are a tool of the state. So while I was there, a Section 14 was declared for the whole of London, which meant it was illegal for myself to gather with a couple of others under the name of Extinction Rebellion, even if you weren't committing an offence except for the Section 14 being in place. Um, that's gross misuse of uh, a power. So in one sense, the police aren't friends. They are there to do their job. Um, at the same time, every police officer is, uh, is made in the image of God. If I get to know each police officer individually, I'm getting to know something of more of what God is like. This is a situation where there's maybe 30 people all locked on, to, you know, locked onto baths, locked onto structures. Um, and I was weeping, weeping because um, it was beautiful. The police were there dragging people away and the people sat on the ground were singing songs of peace. And I'm upset because I'm seeing, you know, grandmothers and scientists and professors and teachers and builders being, being dragged away by the police. And the police officer came up to me and said, uh, are you all right then? I said, no, not really. And um, she said, why is that? I said, well, I've got some questions. She goes, what are those? I said, I looked at her and tried to catch her eye. And I said, at what point, at what point as a police officer does your conscience not allow you to do what you've been ordered to do? And she leaned forward and she said to me, you need to know I've handed in my notice I've only got two weeks left and I've already been in touch with XR to be one of their police liaison officers. I went there with the intention of getting arrested. Just before I went, my, my nana, my grandmother died and I had, a, I had a funeral, which I had just a couple of, uh, couple of days ago, which I was leading. And I decided not to add extra upset so I was in a strange place where I went there with the intention of getting arrested, but then was actually trying to avoid arrest, which was more difficult than I thought. I was getting stopped. Um, I'd have a vicar collar on, walking around London with a retired friend. Police officer would come up and say, are you a protester? I'd say yes. And he'd say, the only place you can go to now is Trafalgar Square. And I would say, um, I'm not going to commit an offence. I'm not going to sit in the road. I just want to go to uh, Westminster Abbey and pray. And I was told very clearly, the only place you can go to now, you have no permission to go anywhere else. That was, it took everything within me not to sit on the floor there and then and get, it, get arrested. In this country, we have, in my view, a kind of pretense of a democracy and any ways that we break the law are a way of saying that, the, that this 
this land, you know, law is not being used in a healthy way in this land and therefore I need to break the law to make myself be heard. People don't pay attention when you stand on the sidelines holding a banner, unfortunately. They, they can have some value, writing to your MP, signing a petition, going on a march. They can help raise awareness of something, but frankly, we've been doing that for 30 years and carbon dioxide emissions have gone up 60%. It hasn't worked that, and I think people have to understand that civil disobedience has got a long history and there's a lot of evidence that that is the thing that makes the change. It's a confrontation stage, and it's done respectfully and with dignity and with beauty and with fun and with compassion. Then it makes sense. The first thing is organisation. Because uh, when they start working together, then they find the common goals that they have as a community. When they start uh, identifying needs and prioritizing needs and making plans together, then they are encouraged and continue uh, working. Every community has to have a community plan, taking into account needs both from men and women and from youth, from children. So everything is included in that, in that plan. And we say, don't make a big plan that you won't be able to fulfill. Do small things. And then we uh, say, here are the laws. And we teach them some laws about uh, community participation, about uh, natural resources, about water, so they can go and speak to the, their local, their municipal uh, uh, authorities and, and say, here is our plan, here are our needs, what uh, is in your budget for us? And so they may be road repairs, electricity, water, schools, anything. And, uh, and some of our community leaders now have become council members. And, and so that gives them more strength. There are huge political structural issues that we have to address, but I don't see the the, the division, the di often the, the false dichotomy, in my view, between the individual and the structure, the state, the policy realm. These, they, are, they are two sides of the same coin. We work as a partnership. It's a messy partnership between bottom-up and top-down. They're not separate things. So policymakers may very occasionally come up with wonderful ideas themselves, but almost always they're influenced by other things they have seen around them. And often those things have emerged from some sort of grassroots change. Now, we don't know where they play out. It, it isn't an emergence system, but those things generally will somewhere will play out in other people around us, in our institutions. That may play out then in terms of local councils, and that may play out in terms of changing an agenda or a dialogue that the policymakers at a national level, or indeed at an international level, may start to, to have. There are three elements to it, as I see, for us. The first thing, we need to identify the large carbon footprint components in our own lives. It's not too challenging if you sit down to think, well, where do my main carbon emissions come from? It's basically, where do we use most of our energy? Actually, the emissions savings that we get if we try to make those changes, which we need to do, are not that important. But what is important is it gives us the credibility to talk about that with our friends, our families, at our work, and so forth. So there's really clear psychological evidence to say that, that if you want to try to have debates and arguments, then actually, your credibility is improved if you're trying to do these things yourself. And particularly then if you can talk about how difficult it is or how easy you found it. So those discussions and dialogues are facilitated by us trying to do these things. 
But the emissions themselves, let's be clear, are, are much less important than the idea that it opens up the scope for localised dialogue. That localised dialogue then plays out within our universities, within our schools, within our hospitals, within the, wherever we happen to work, in our sports clubs, with our friends, down the pub, all of those things. We start a new dialogue. But we also need to engage directly with our companies, um, with the institutions that we're more directly involved with, with our local councils. I think about what solutions we can come up with. If people are putting forward things that are completely counter to responding to climate change, then emphasize those things. Use our local media, use local radio, write letters, write emails, engage via social media. There are lots of ways that we can have our, our say and our influence. We may not always be right. We think our ideas are good. We have to listen to other people's ideas. So listening, not just hearing what other people are saying, and then evolving our own ideas. But I think there's a role beyond that as well to, to engage at the national level. Policymakers, particularly in most of the European countries, the democratic process is still incredibly rich and really open to many people to have engagement with. I know we criticise it all the time, but I think we, we are far too cynical about our political processes. Write to our MPs, go to the surgeries, critique what they say when the things don't fit, but also be very supportive when they are making difficult policy decisions that are broadly in line with our commitments. It's of driving a, a much stronger agenda across all of these tiers from our from our immediate local vicinity to our to our sort of towns and villages and communities to the national level. And we as citizens, I think, can engage across all of those. So we need to open up space for this dialogue as wide as we can. It must, it, we must make sure we get much greater cultural buy-in here. Sometimes these other communities will have different cultural framings, different ways to look at the issues, different sets of insights that could be really revealing to, to the rest of us as well. So we need to, that wider portfolio of, of thinking about these issues. And we need to develop new narratives, not just an, a narrative about a progressive future, but multiple narratives about a progressive, low-carbon, equitable future. We need to reconsider what do we mean by value? What do we mean by rewarding success? Um, we need to have a better concept of, of time. So rather than just be thinking about the short term, think about the longer term, about our children and our children's children and our children's children's children and about other species as well, the non-human world or the more than human world, not non-human, but the more than human world. I think one of the problems we have had is that we have taken post-enlightenment a very reductionist view of the world and it's been phenomenally successful. Let's not pretend otherwise. Reductionism, post-enlightenment, along with the fossil fuels, have provided us with lots of really wonderful things in our society. But what we have been really poor at doing is understanding the system implications of that sort of reductionism and of our level of sort of extraction from society, our, our abstraction from it in some respects, but our also extraction from it in terms of materials. And I think we have been very poor at that and are really struggling still to understand system implications, whilst we're excellent at looking at more and more detail of a smaller and smaller part of the system. We seem to be almost like genetically uh, um, unable to be able to stand back and look at the bigger system implications. But I think we have to start doing that. And sometimes maybe other cultures have been better at doing that than the, sort of a, than, than the dominant Western culture that we're seeing, uh, certainly around us in, in the Northern Hemisphere and influencing other parts of the world, perhaps uh, unduly influencing other parts of the world. Ultimately, this is going to be a, a, you know, it is going to be a messy partnership on every single level between the seven and a half billion people living on this planet, between us and other species as well, between technologies and politics and, and the social sciences and the humanities. There are no silver bullets to this problem. 
There are no very clear pathways and probably won't be a single clear pathway. It's going to be an iterative learning process. But we can't sit on our laurels anymore. We have to start to respond immediately. We should have responded yesterday. And because we didn't, it's much more profound sort of rates of change that we require today. Um, but we need, a, we need a much wider constituency of, of voices to be heard if we are going to respond in any reasonable, reasoned fashion to the challenge that we have brought upon ourselves. Well, we believe that this is this is Earth is not ours. It was created by God, and uh, and Jesus came here to Earth, I believe, and He lived among us. He felt what we felt, what humankind felt, and He saw the needs, and He saw. The, I like the passage. When he fell, a multitude, uh, 5,000 men, women, and children, he could have made a miracle, you know, out of nothing and brought the bread and feed the people. But he, he said, uh, do you have something? You feed them. And they, you know, we don't have anything. So he said, anything, nothing? Well, here is a child with five loaves of bread and two fish. In the hands of Jesus that multiplied. We are not asked to be just, you know, waiting that everything comes from heaven. We have to do our share. We have to find that resources, look around in a collective way. And uh, he then told the disciples, tell the people to sit down on the green grass. So you can use the earth, you can use the grass. You can use whatever is in your hand, but collectively it will be extended to everyone. And everyone was fed, that's what it says. Uh, so I, I believe that as Jesus came to teach, to preach and to heal, we are also uh, commanded because he also said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So it's the same mission that Jesus came to uh, do on earth that is our mission to care for everyone else and of course to care for creation as well. This recognition of our interconnection with things is I suppose what shows itself in a greater openness simply to understanding how it works, the kind of science that really does explore intelligent exchange in the world. It shows itself, above all, I would say, in a sort of sympathetic patience with the processes of nature. We don't try to get shortcuts and quick fixes out of the natural world. It's not that we just leave it alone, but our involvement with it becomes something that is prepared to spend a bit longer feeling for the grain of things, not making dramatic, overwhelming interventions. So the good gardener listens to the soil and the season and the nature of the plant. The good gardener doesn't say, my main job is to get this garden full of the same flowers 12 months through. 
good gardener says, the interventions I make, the action I take, will have to be somehow you know, in and around how things actually grow. So too much intervention, too much technological triumphalism about how we engage with the world is part of our problem. Scaling that back a bit, learning a bit about walking at the pace of the world around us, I think is how it shows itself. And that's why I'd say things like, <laughs> said sometimes in the past, gardening and cooking are good for us. They show us what can't be hurried. And maybe that unhurried relation is the way we show that we've got the point. So we say that tell the truth, you know, that's our request and that has to be for ourselves as well. And so telling the truth is about speaking to your friends and family and neighbours about this crisis in an honest way and about the rebellion in an honest way. We don't know it's going to succeed and we don't know what can be saved. And if we just make it sound like, oh yeah, if we just work really hard and we rebel and then we're going to turn this thing around and everything's going to be okay, it just doesn't feel honest. I suppose the question is, how bad could it be? That there are so much heating locked in to the system already, tipping points are already being breached, the ice is melting. And what would it look like if we really took this emergency seriously in the next year or so? And, and we went into, it's for want of a better analogy, a wartime approach, a wartime economy. And I don't mean that we're in war with anything, but that spirit of like, actually we're in a crisis and we've got to all pull together and do something here. On the one hand, we have to try. Ultimately, it comes back to this point of what's the right thing to do. Is the right thing just to roll over and give up? in despair. Well, despair is not a fun place to be, actually. So I always say, look into the abyss. And it is an abyss. Really look into it. Don't shy away from looking into it because we're a death-phobic culture. And when you face your own death and you face death of, and the problems that your children are going to face and the, love, the ones that you love and life, life on earth face and it's hard but you can face it you have the inner strength to do it especially if you have faith and face it, feel it and then decide what you're going to do about it Put your hands in the soil Feel the groan and feel the joy all sit with the hurt, stare into the dirt, occupy the bandstands, gather lost citizens, climb down your pyramids, relinquish your privilege, welcome strangers to your table, as though they were angels, make space for the spent, feel the lament, break your vows to the powers, Plant trees and grow flowers Share the resources Free all the horses All citizens Put your hands in the soil And feel the growth Can you feel the joy? 
Who's not afraid to die? Emerge from the waves, broke loose from the powers of the age. Live now, citizens of what's left of the age to come. Behold the Messiah dying for the lands we are crucifying. Break bread and take drink, all feel and think. Shed tears every day for everything we throw away. Mourn for your families, mourn for your enemies Sing to the stars, console our grieving hearts All citizens, put your hands in the soil And feel the growth Can you feel joy and be still and be still clap your hands to your mouth let your pride go south put your hand on your head make terms with the dead put your hands on your face too late to learn from my mistakes Put your hand on your heart Can we stop what we start? Sisters to the leverage Brothers to the edges Youth to the fore This bleak future is yours All ye of noble bone Join the scum of the earth Gather round the powerless There's the power that can save us in the soil and feel the growth can you feel the joy and be still 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 stars no <clears throat> god damn it did we have one last week no oh, i thought you did if you already no. sent us a five star and you still love us send us a voicemail uh 484 pastor and yep. we have a question a non-political question for the distractathon yep. aaron deanne at aaron 417 uh four one seven five three oh nine <laughs> 
Both me and not how that goes. Monktonius87 responds to Pastor's podcast comment that Rural King is the best store ever was literally, is it though? I am dying. Yes, it is the yes, best store it ever. It is the best. best store. And you are completely incorrect. <clears throat> uh, Ruben Hood at Ruben Hood. I went to college for five and a half years. I mean, he went to a doctor. Uh, and I've never memorized for nine doctor years. Yeah, they're called doctors. Uh, and I've never memorized or even heard the fucking fight song. You motherfuckers dropped the IU fight song like you were screaming along to Hot for Teacher at a yeah. Van Halen concert. Wait, somebody went to IU and didn't know the goddamn fight song? No, no really he didn't said he go. just went to college for five and a half years but didn't know their fight song. I, mean, I wonder what the hashtag the, Adam the fight song is for ITT Tech. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, computers, <laughs> oh, computers, oh, computers, we're all for you. Zero, one, 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 zero, one, zero, one, zero, one. Beep, beep, boop, boop, beep, 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 boop, boop, beep, 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 beep. I don't think people realize Southern Indiana, like, that song is baked into your DNA. From the moment you're born. I mean, I've known the words to that song since I was six. Easily. I mean, it's just. Easily. Yeah. My dad never drank out of a bottle, but he had a bottle. I bottle opener that played that song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and along the same line, Greg Platt at IU fan. Greg, I sung hailed old IU as a lullaby to my daughter. Nice. Yep. Um, Aaron Deanne again. Uh, y'all, I'm only 40 minutes in and I am both laughing my ass off and very concerned. <laughs> yeah. In 40 uh, minutes, that's about the time we got to, uh, what are you drinking? Yeah, <laughs> right. National Treasure at Dave the Explorer. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Like Dave's accepting his place in society. Uh, five minutes into episode 229, and the boys are belting out downtown with Petula Clark. <laughs> Heard previously discussions about Vaclav, ha- Vaclav Havel. Baklava? It says Vaclav Havel and, and Alabama Thunderpussy. Well, there it is. <laughs> Goes to show that Pastor's Podcast is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That's right. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Too many goddamn snakes on this motherfucking plane. <laughs> Hi, Jude. He can't hear me. I whispered that. Mookie's brother at Derek A. Blaylock. Uh, if you're drinking along with the Pastors Podcast, pro tip is to turn your podcast player to slower than real time so as not to miss the next hashtag. Hi, Unless one Mookie. of them starts to giggle, then you'll be okay. Hashtag epitode all. Uh, uh, that's it. All right. There you go. All right. Um, well, we played close attention. We wrote them all down. Well, we paid close attention and we wrote them all down. Now it's time to decide our hashtag. Hashtag Limp Biscuit Contest. Hashtag Matt is Angel Lansbury. So can we talk about the Limp Biscuit Contest? Hashtag. Hold on, Michael has an idea. What is, how would that work out? Like a contest for Limp Biscuits. Are we, we each have our own biscuit? No, no, so, no, no, no. This so, is not how this works, Michael. So, so, Everybody jerks con- off onto a biscuit, and whoever's last has to eat it. Oh, so the context Except is... Except in this case, yeah. it's going to be Josh no matter what. <laughs> Josh no matter what. So Josh is the ringer. We're going to mail it to him. That, yeah. way it, that way it soaks into the biscuit. <laughs> oh, could you imagine picking up that wet box? Oh, my God. Oh, Christ. Just covering man load. All right. <laughs> Hashtag dig deeper. For my poem, uh, it's also a delirious song. Hash- <laughs> I want to dig deep. 
I want to dig deep into Jesus. Jesus, I dig you. I saw somebody last night on Facebook admonishing everyone to white-knuckle Jesus what? in these tough times. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to help you. might help Jesus. I don't know that white-knuckling Jesus is going to help a whole lot. <laughs> I was like, God, do these people not know what they're no, saying? No, they don't. They don't understand. Fucking they have no hell, idea. Like, no. <clears throat> Jesus. They're holding on to Jesus. Hashtag stroking the pearl of great price. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hashtag. That's a, that's a sequel to Aladdin. What? God damn, Michael. <laughs> Hashtag sit on my face and absolve me of my sins. Hashtag fucks where he eats. Hashtag literally struck gold. Hashtag reverse Tim Robbins. And then hashtag fight song for ITT tech. I've <laughs> uh, got hashtag Branson Andreas. Yeah. Hashtag prize czar. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> hashtag Matt takes down the pub. <laughs> hashtag murder Matt wrote. If the if the, if tomorrow if tomorrow when you wake up and the pub's not appear, Matt got mad at Christians and we all paid dear. Uh, hashtag more. he told him fuck off forever. Hashtag more. And eat a bag of dicks. Morby Parker. <laughs> <laughs> Powered by Morby Parker. Hashtag found the pearl of great price. Hashtag <laughs> anal kegels. Hashtag coat the camera. Oh, oh. my God. Oh. Hashtag that wet box. Jesus. Hashtag covered in mail load. <laughs> I'm actually pretty proud of that the one. The secret of the ooze. Oh. <laughs> Covered in man load. It was like the Ninja Turtles fourth movie. Yeah. Very underrated. Yeah. Uh, starring, starring, starring Vanilla Ice's brother. <laughs> Chad Ice. Chad Ice. Chad Ice. Well, that's, never mind what else I say from here on. Uh, hashtag white knuckling Jesus. <laughs> hashtag sequel to a lad. <laughs> <laughs> and then hashtag Chad on <laughs> I love it ah, I love Chad Ice <laughs> oh. oh my uh, god I've got hashtag prize czar uh, <laughs> sword swallowing uh, pearl river piece of wood oh. and is that the sequel to mystic river with uh, what you remember Mystic River, that movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sequel is Pearl. <laughs> That's the porn parody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Serpent Circumcision. Man. Stroking the Pearl of Great Price. I, 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 no, man, Chad Ice is fucking fantastic. I could go with either one of those, <clears throat> honestly. Fucks or eats. <laughs> What, what, how do you feel about white knuckling? Jesus. No, I'm not doing that one. No, no. <laughs> what about Morby Parker? <laughs> I like Chad Ice. 
that's fine. I was working with a guy today that that I was training him on. Oh how to do God, a PM. I know who you're talking about. And he uh, just think, just think. <laughs> all you, all I have to, I'm just gonna say two words, and you'll know what this person is like. Affliction shirts. Yep. Yep. <laughs> totally. Yep. Uh, and, and he uh, he slipped. He was holding something, and and it like scratched his his wrist. And I was like, dude, you almost went full stigmata right there. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? He's like, what? <laughs> I said, you almost went full stigmata. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What are we doing? What's the hashtag? Uh, chat ice. Chat ice. <laughs> if you. <laughs> If you've listened to this episode in its entirety, hit us up on Chad social media <laughs> with the hashtag, hashtag Chad Ice. We are, yeah, send us a voicemail, 484-PASTER, uh, 484-727-8373. I don't even give a shit about numbers. We just want to keep you from having a shit ton of anxiety on election night. And we want to have fun. Now now that we have a prize czar, it'll be fun. (laughs) I'd like to work with the planning committee. Uh. (laughs) And by that, I mean Michael. Facebook.com slash Pastors Podcast. (laughs) That's all that matters. Go there. Yeah. Subscribe. Be alerted whenever we have a live event. Yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah, it should be fun. Brandon will be here. I mean, Brandon Andrews will be here. It'll be a fucking shit show. And we'll that's take all your we voicemails. Want. We want to entertain you instead of having you be full of anxiety on election night. Yeah, we'll have guests. We'll have games. We'll come. Up, I'll come up with surprises. We'll figure something out. I do out. have a game, so if you okay, wanna... just let me. All I'm asking you is you communicate. That's all I fucking ask you to. Well, Brad doesn't want to know. I will go buy prizes. I just need you to communicate. You talk to Brad, him. No. I don't want to know anything. Are we doing prizes? What What is going on right now? Matt's playing something. We don't need prizes for us. Prizes this is a for live people. version of it's Metallica. Turn the page. <laughs> Maybe like uh, what? Something we can order on Amazon and ship to somebody else. Okay. I don't know. Books or fifty-five gallon drums of lube. How much yeah. money do we have? <laughs> it's a great I'll, g- I'll give I'll, I'll give you a budget. No, we, we should do a fifty-five gallon drum of uh, motor oil from rural. Canada. Oh, I bet they ship it to someone. Oh my god, that would literally. We could just shut the podcast down at that point. Like, if you're sending fifty-five gallon drums of motor oil, we should. I tell you what, we should do. We should just go find the weirdest shit that we can find at, at rural, rural King, King for purposes. Yeah, it's got if you want to mail it out. Then we can mail it out. Yeah, we'll mail, we'll mail it, it out. out. Yeah, yeah, let's get okay, Rural King. Well, let's find Rural King. Here's the shit we can find. Uh, oh, you, okay. need a, you need a hat. You definitely need to have yeah. a, uh, some sort of uh, Crocs. Can we send <laughs> it? Yeah. Fake like Crocs. Off brand yeah. Crocs. Those are my favorite. Like an orange safety vest. <laughs> yes. A fucking gun. No, we're not doing no, we're that. Not we're not mailing gun. Oh. We're not going to mail well, it's a gun. Rural King. How I mean, about an arrow? Not a bow, just a fucking arrow. How about a chicken? Some popcorn. Like a live chicken. Like a duck. Yeah, let's just send him a fucking baby duck. A popcorn salt. You can do that. <laughs> Jars pickled of like eggs. Something pickled. Pickled we'll eggs. Something pickled, yeah. Lavender scented homemade soap. Yeah. Fuck, I'm so on board. Dog toys. We'll send him dog. Oh, my God. Okay, so the three of us at some point in the next week or so. <laughs> yep, we'll yep. make it happen. Oh, my God. We'll have to videotape that shit, too, because that'll be funny <laughs> as fuck. All right. Uh, Patreon.com slash <laughs> <laughs> Don't fund our, our wildest dreams. All right. Goodbye.